0: Super awkward funcast. You're listening to the super awkward funcast. Yeah. Hello, and this is part three of the staged reading of COVID 19, The Great Reset by Klaus Schwab. From the World Economic Forum and Thierry or Thierry whatever the hell his name is Mallory Mallory, whatever the fuck anyway we're going to continue this shit until it's done so let's get back to it so where we left off was 1.5.1.2 air pollution and pandemic risk It's been known for years that air pollution, largely caused by emissions that also contribute to global warming, is a silent killer linked to various health conditions ranging from diabetes and cancer to cardiovascular and respiratory diseases. According to the WHO, 90% of the world's population breathes air that fails to meet its safety guidelines causing the premature death of seven million people each year and prompting the organization to qualify air pollution as a public health emergency we now know that air pollution worsens the impact of any particular coronavirus not only this the current SARS-CoV-2 on our health as early as 2003 a study published in the midst of the SARS epidemic suggested that air pollution might explain the variation in the level of lethality, making it clear for the first time that the greater the level of air pollution, the greater the likelihood of death from the disease caused by a coronavirus. Since then, a growing body of research has shown how a lifetime of breathing dirtier air can make people more susceptible to the coronavirus. In the US, a recent medical paper concluded that those regions with more polluted air will experience higher risks of death from COVID-19, showing that US counties with higher pollution levels will suffer higher numbers of hospitalizations and numbers of deaths. has formed in the medical and public community that there is a synergistic effect between air pollution exposure and the possible occurrence of COVID-19, and a worse outcome when the virus does strike. The research, still embryonic but expanding fast, hasn't proved yet that a link of causation exists, but it unambiguously exposes a strong correlation between air pollution and the spread of the coronavirus and its severity. It seems that air pollution in general and the concentration of particulate matter in particular impair the airways, the lungs' first line of defense, meaning that people, irrespective of their age, who live in highly polluted cities will face a greater risk of catching COVID 19 and dying from it. This may explain why people in Lombardy one of Europe's most polluted regions, who had contracted the virus were shown to be twice as likely to die from COVID-19 than people almost anywhere else in Italy. 1.5.1.3. Lockdown and carbon emissions. It is too early to define the amount by which global carbon dioxide emissions will fall in 2020, but the International Energy Agency, IEA, estimates in its global energy review 2020 that they will fall by eight percent even though this figure would correspond to the largest annual reduction on record it is still minuscule compared to the size of the problem and it remains inferior to the annual reduction in emissions of 7.6 percent over the next decade that the u.n thinks is necessary to hold the global rise in temperatures below 1.5% Celsius. Considering the severity of the lockdowns, the 8% figure looks rather disappointing. It seems to suggest that small individual actions, consuming much less, not using our cars and not flying, are of little significance when compared to the size of emissions generated by electricity, agriculture and industry, the big-ticket emitters that continued to operate during the lockdowns, with the partial exception of some industries. What it also reveals is that the biggest offenders in terms of carbon emissions aren't always those often perceived as the obvious culprits. A recent sustainability report shows that the total carbon emissions generated by the electricity production required to power our electronic devices and transmit their data are roughly equivalent to that of the global airline industry the conclusion even unprecedented and draconian lockdowns with a third of the world population confined to their homes for more than a month came nowhere near to being a viable decarbonization strategy because even so the world economy kept emitting large amounts of carbon dioxide what then might such a strategy look like the considerable size and scope of the of the challenge can only be addressed by a combination of one a radical and major systemic change in how we produce the energy we need to function and two structural changes in our consumption behavior if in the post-pandemic era we decide to resume our lives just as before by driving the same cars by flying to the same destinations by eating the same things by heating our house the same way and so on The COVID-19 crisis will have gone to waste as far as climate policies are concerned. Conversely, if some of the habits we were forced to adopt during the pandemic translate into structural changes in behavior, the climate outcome might be different. Commuting less, working remotely a bit more, bicycling and walking instead of driving to keep the air of our cities as clean as it was during the lockdowns, Vacationing nearer to home, all all these, if aggregated at scale, could lead to a sustained reduction in carbon emissions. This brings us to the all-important question of whether the pandemic will eventually exercise a positive or negative effect on climate change policies. 1.5.2 Impact of the Pandemic on Climate Change and Other Environmental Policies The pandemic is destined to dominate the policy landscape for years with the serious risk that it could overshadow environmental concerns. In a telling anecdote, the Convention Center in Glasgow, where the UN COP26 climate summit should have taken place in November 2020, was converted in April into a hospital for COVID-19 patients. Already, climate negotiations have been delayed, and policy initiatives postponed, nourishing the narrative that for a long while governmental leaders will only be paying attention to the multifaceted range of immediate problems created by the pandemic crisis another narrative has also emerged elaborated by some national leaders senior business executives and prominent opinion makers it runs along these lines that the covid 19 crisis cannot go to waste and that now is the time to enact sustainable environmental policies in reality What happens with the fight against climate change in the post-pandemic era could go in two opposite directions. The first corresponds to the narrative above. The economic consequences of the pandemic are so painful, difficult to address, and complex to implement that most governments around the world may decide to temporarily put aside concerns about global warming to focus on the economic recovery. If such is the case, policy decisions will support and stimulate fossil fuel-heavy and carbon-emitting industries by subsidizing them. They will also roll back stringent environmental standards seen as a stumbling block on the road to rapid economic recovery and will encourage companies and consumers to produce and consume as much stuff as possible. The second is spurred by a different narrative in which businesses and governments are emboldened by a new social conscience among large segments of the general population that life can be different and is pushed by activists, the moment must be seized to take advantage of this unique window of opportunity to redesign a more sustainable economy for the greater good of our societies. Let's examine both divergent possible outcomes in more detail. Needless to say, they are country and region EU-dependent. No two countries will adopt the same policies nor move at the same speed, but ultimately they should all embrace the direction of the less carbon-intensive trend. Three key reasons could explain why this is not a given and why the focus on the environment could fade when the pandemic starts retreating. 1. Governments could decide that it is in the best collective interest to pursue growth at any cost in order to cushion the impact on unemployment. 2. Companies will be under such pressure to increase revenues that sustainability in general and climate considerations in particular will become secondary. 3. Low oil prices, if sustained which is likely, could encourage both consumers and businesses to rely even more on carbon-intensive energy. These three reasons are cogent enough to make them compelling but there are others that might just succeed in pushing the trend in the other direction four in particular could succeed in making the world cleaner and more sustainable one enlightened leadership some leaders and decision makers who were already at the forefront of the fight against climate change may want to take advantage of the shock inflicted by the pandemic to implement long-lasting and wider environmental changes they will in effect make good use of the pandemic by not letting the crisis go to waste yep the exhortation of different leaders ranging from hrh the prince of wales to andrew cuomo to build it back better goes in that direction so does a dual declaration made by the iea with dan jorgensen Minister for Climate, Energy and Utilities of Denmark, suggesting that clean energy transitions could help kickstart economies. Around the world, leaders are getting ready now, drawing up massive economic stimulus packages. Some of these plans will provide short-term boosts, others will shape infrastructure for decades to come. We believe that by making clean energy an integral part of their plans, Governments can deliver jobs and economic growth while also ensuring that their energy systems are modernized, more resilient, and less polluting. Governments led by enlightened leaders will make their stimulus packages conditional upon green commitments. They will, for example, provide more generous financial conditions for companies with low-carbon business models. 2. Risk awareness The pandemic played the role of a great risk awakening, making us much more aware of the risks we collectively face, and reminding us that our world is tightly interconnected. COVID-19 made it clear that we ignore science and expertise at our peril, and that the consequences of our collective actions can be considerable. Hopefully some of these lessons that offer us a better understanding of what an existential risk really means and entails will now be transferred to climate risks. As Nicholas Stern, Chair of the Grantham Research Institute on Climate Change and the Environment stated, What we have seen from all of this is that we can make changes. We have to recognize there will be other pandemics and be better prepared. We must also recognize that climate change is a deeper and bigger threat that doesn't go away and it's just as urgent. Having worried for months about the pandemic and its effect on our lungs, we'll become obsessed about clean air. During the lockdowns, a significant number of us saw and smelled for ourselves the benefits of reduced air pollution, possibly prompting a collective realization that we just have a few years to address the worst consequences of global warming and climate change. If this is the case, societal, collective, and individual changes will follow. 3. Change in Behavior As a consequence of the point above, societal attitudes and demands may evolve towards greater sustainability to a greater degree than commonly assumed. Our consumption patterns change dramatically during the lockdowns by forcing us to focus on the essential and giving us no choice but to adopt greener living. This may last prompting us to disregard everything that we do not really need and putting into motion a virtuous circle for the environment. Likewise, we may decide that working from home, when possible, is good for both the environment and our individual well-being. Commuting is a destroyer of well-being. The longer it is, the more detrimental it becomes to our physical and mental health. These structural changes in how we work consume invest may take a little while before they become widespread enough to make a real difference but as we argued before what matters is the direction and the strength of the trend the poet and philosopher Lao Tzu was right in saying a journey of a thousand miles begins with a single step we are just at the beginning of a long and painful recovery and for many of us thinking about sustainability may seem like a luxury But when things start to improve, we'll collectively remember that a relation of causality exists between air pollution and COVID-19. Then sustainability will cease to be secondary and climate change so closely correlated with air pollution will move to the forefront of our preoccupations. What social scientists call behavioral contagion, the way in which attitudes ideas and behaviors spread throughout the population might then work its magic for activism. Some analysts ventured that the pandemic would provoke the obsolescence of activism. But the exact opposite may well prove to be true. According to a group of American and European academics, the coronavirus has emboldened the motivation for change and triggered new tools and strategies in terms of social activism. Over the course of just several weeks, this group of researchers collected data on various forms of social activism and identified almost 100 distinct methods of nonviolent action, including vi- physical, virtual, and hybrid actions. Their conclusion Emergencies often prove to be the forge in which new ideas and opportunities are hammered out. While it is impossible to predict what the long-term effects of such growing skill and awareness may be, it's clear that people power has not diminished. Instead, movements around the world are adapting to remote organizing, building their bases, sharpening their messaging, and planning strategies for what comes next. If their assessment is correct, social activism, repressed by necessity during the lockdowns and their various measures of physical and social distancing, may reemerge with renewed vigor once the periods of confinement are over. emboldened by what they saw during the lockdowns, no air pollution, climate activists will redouble their efforts, imposing further pressure on companies and investors. As we will see in Chapter 2, Investors, activism will also be a force to be reckoned with. It will strengthen the cause of social activists by adding an extra and powerful dimension to it. Let's imagine the following situation to illustrate the point. A group of green activists could demonstrate in front of a coal-fired power plant to demand greater enforcement of pollution regulations, while a group of investors does the same in the boardroom by depriving the plant access to capital. Across the four reasons, scattered factual evidence gives us hope that the green trend will eventually prevail. It comes from different domains but converges toward, towards the conclusion that the future could be greener than we commonly assume. To corroborate this conviction, four observations intersect with the four reasons provided. One, in June 2020, BP, one of the world's oil and gas supermajors, slashed the value of its assets by $17.5 billion, having come to the conclusion that the pandemic will accelerate a global shift towards cleaner forms of energy. Other energy companies are about to make a similar move. In the same spirit, major global companies like microsoft have committed to becoming carbon negative by 2030 which i don't think is possible but okay two the european green deal launched by the european commission is a massive endeavor and the most tangible manifestation yet of public authorities deciding not to let the covid 19 crisis go to waste the plan commits one trillion pounds for lowering emissions and investing in the circular economy with the aim of making the EU the first carbon-neutral continent by 2050 in terms of net emissions and decoupling economic growth from resource use. Three, various international surveys show that a large majority of citizens around the world want the economic recovery from the corona crisis to prioritize climate change. In the countries that compose the G20, a sizable majority of 65 percent of citizens support a green recovery. 4. Some cities like Seoul are furthering their commitment to climate and environment policies by implementing their own Green New Deal, framed as one way to mitigate the pandemic fallout. The direction of the trend is clear, but ultimately Systemic change will come from policymakers and business leaders willing to take advantage of COVID stimulus packages to kickstart the nature-positive economy. This will not only be about public investments. The key to crowding private capital into new sources of nature-positive economic value will be to shift key policy levers and public finance incentives as part of a wider economic reset. There is a strong case for acting more forcefully on spatial planning and land use regulations, public finance and subsidy reform, innovation policies that help to drive expansion and deployment in addition to R&D, blended finance and better measurement of natural capital as a key economic asset. Many governments are starting to act, but much more is needed to tip the system towards a nature-positive new norm and make a majority of people all over the world realize this is not only an imperious necessity but also a considerable opportunity. A policy paper prepared by Systemic in collaboration with the World Economic Forum estimates that building the nature-positive economy could represent more than $10 trillion per year by 2030 in terms of new economic opportunities as well as avoided economic costs. In the short term, deploying around $250 billion of stimulus funding could generate up to 37 million nature-positive jobs in a highly cost-effective manner. Resetting the environment should not be seen as a cost, but rather as an investment that will generate economic activity and employment opportunities. Hopefully the threat from COVID-19 won't last. One day it will be behind us. By contrast, The threat from climate change and its associated extreme weather events will be with us for the foreseeable future and beyond. The climate risk is unfolding more slowly than the pandemic did, but it will have even more severe consequences. To a great extent, its severity will depend on the policy response to the pandemic. Every measure destined to revive economic activity will have an immediate effect on how we live but will also have an impact on carbon emissions that will in turn have an environmental impact across the globe and measured across generations. As we've argued in this book, these choices are ours to make. 1.6. Technological Reset When it was published in 2016, the Fourth Industrial Revolution made the case that technology and digitization will revolutionize everything, making the overused and often ill-used adage, this time is different, apt. Simply put, major technological innovations are on the brink of fueling momentous change throughout the world. In the four short years since, technological progress has moved impressively fast. AI is now all around us, from drones and voice recognition to virtual assistants, and translation software. Our mobile devices have become a permanent and integral part of our own personal and professional lives, helping us on so many different fronts, anticipating our needs, listening to us, and locating us, even when not asked to do so. (laughs) Automation and robots are reconfiguring the way businesses operate with staggering speed And returns on scale inconceivable just a few years ago innovation in genetics with synthetic biology now on the horizon is also exciting paving the way for developments in healthcare that are groundbreaking biotechnology still falls short of stopping let alone preventing a disease outbreak but recent innovations have allowed the identification and sequencing of the coronavirus genome much faster than in the past as well as the elaboration of more effective diagnostics. In addition, the most recent biotechnology techniques using RNA and DNA platforms make it possible to develop vaccines faster than ever. They might also help with the development of new bioengineered treatments. To sum up, the speed and breadth of the fourth industrial revolution had been and continue to be remarkable. This chapter argues that the pandemic will accelerate innovation even more, catalyzing technological changes already underway, comparable to the exacerbation effect it has had on other underlying global and domestic issues, and turbocharging any digital business or the digital dimension of any business. It will also accentuate one of the greatest societal and individual challenges posed by tech—privacy. We will see how contact tracing has an unequaled capacity and a quasi-essential place in the armory needed to combat COVID-19, while at the same time being positioned to become an enabler of mass surveillance. 1.6.1 Accelerating the Digital Transformation With the pandemic, the digital transformation that so many analysts have been referring to for years, without being exactly sure what it meant, has found its catalyst. One major effect of confinement will be the expansion and progression of the digital world in a decisive and often permanent manner. This is noticeable not only in its most mundane and anecdotal aspects, more online conversations, more streaming to entertain, more digital content in general, but also in terms of forcing more profound changes in how companies operate, something that is explored in more depth in the next chapter in april 2020 several tech leaders observed how quickly and radically the necessities created by the health crisis had precipitated the adoption of a wide range of technologies in the space of just one month it appeared that many companies in terms of tech take up fast forwarded by several years for the digitally savvy This meant good things, while for the others, a very poor outlook, sometimes catastrophically so. Satya Nadella, CEO of Microsoft, observed that social and physical distancing requirements created a remote everything, bringing forward the adoption of a wide range of technologies by two years, while Sundar Pichai, Google CEO, marveled at the impressive leap in digital activity forecasting a significant and lasting effect on sectors as different as online work education shopping medicine and entertainment 1.6.1.1 the consumer during the lockdowns many consumers previously reluctant to rely too heavily on digital applications and services were forced to change their habits almost overnight watching movies online instead of going to the cinema, having meals delivered instead of going out to restaurants, talking to friends remotely instead of meeting them in the flesh, talking to colleagues on a screen instead of chit-chatting at the coffee machine, exercising online instead of going to the gym, and so on. Thus, almost instantly, most things became e-things, e-learning, e-commerce, e-gaming, e-books, e-attendance. Some of the old habits will certainly return. The joy and pleasure of personal contacts can't be matched. We are social animals, after all! But many of the attack behaviors that we were forced to adopt during confinement will, through familiarity, become more natural. As social and physical distancing persist, relying more on digital platforms to communicate or work or seek advice or order something will, little by little, gain ground on formerly ingrained habits. In addition, the pros and cons of online versus offline will be under constant scrutiny through a variety of lenses. If health considerations become paramount, we may decide, for example, that a cycling class in front of a screen at home doesn't match the cov- conviviality and fun of doing it with a group in a live class, but it is in fact safer and cheaper The same reasoning applies to many different domains like flying to a meeting. Zoom is safer, cheaper, greener, and much more convenient. Driving to a distant family gathering for the weekend. The WhatsApp family group is not as fun, but again, safer, cheaper, and greener. Or even attending an academic course, not as fulfilling, but cheaper and more convenient. 1.6.1.2 The Regulator This transition towards more digital of everything in our professional and personal lives will also be supported and accelerated by regulators. To date, governments have often slowed the pace of adoption of new technologies by lengthy ponderings about what the best regulatory framework should look like. But, as the example of telemedicine and drone delivery is now showing, a dramatic acceleration forced by necessity is possible. During the lockdowns, a quasi-global relaxation of regulations that had previously hampered progress in domains where the technology had been available for years suddenly happened because there was no better or other choice available what was until recently unthinkable suddenly became possible and we can be certain that neither those patients who experienced how easy and convenient telemedicine nor was nor the regulators who made it possible will want to see it go into reverse new regulations will stay in place. In the same vein, a similar story is unfolding in the U.S. with the Federal Aviation Authority, but also in other countries related to fast-tracking regulation pertaining to drone delivery. The current imperative to propel, no matter what, the contactless economy and the subsequent willingness of regulators to speed it up means that there are no holds barred. What is true for until... Recently, sensitive domains like telemedicine and drone delivery is also true for more mundane and well covered regulatory fields like mobile payments. Just to provide a banal example, in the midst of the lockdown in April 2020, European banking regulators. Decided to increase the amount that shoppers could pay using their mobile devices where, while also reducing the authentication requirements that made it previously difficult to make payments using platforms like PayPal or Venmo. Such moves will only accelerate the digital prevalence in our daily lives, albeit not without contingent cybersecurity issues. 1.6.1.3 1. The firm. In one form or another, social and physical distancing measures are likely to persist after the pandemic itself subsides justifying the decision in many companies from different industries to accelerate automation after a while the enduring concerns about technological unemployment will recede as societies emphasize the need to restructure the workplace in a way that minimizes close Human contact. Indeed, automation technologies are particularly well suited to a world in which human beings can't get too close to each other or are willing to reduce their interactions. Our lingering and possibly lasting fear of being infected with a virus, COVID 19, or another, will thus speed the relentless march of automation, particularly in the fields most susceptible to automation. In 2016 two academics from oxford university came to the conclusion that up to 86 percent of jobs in restaurants 75 percent of jobs in retail and 59 percent of jobs in entertainment could be automatized by 2035. these three industries are among those the hardest hit by the pandemic and in which automating for, for reasons of hygiene and cleanliness will be a necessity that in turn will further accelerate the transition towards more tech and more digital. There is an additional phenomenon set to support the expansion of automation when economic distancing might follow social distancing. As countries turn inward and global companies shorten their super-efficient but highly fragile supply chains, automation and robots that enable more local production while keeping costs down will be in great demand. The process of automation was set in motion many years ago but the critical issue once again relates to the accelerating pace of change and transition. The pandemic will fast forward the adoption of automation in the workplace and the introduction of more robots in our personal and professional lives from the onset of the lockdowns It became apparent that robots and A.I. were a natural alternative when human labor was not available. Furthermore, they were used whenever possible to reduce the health risks to human employees. At a time when physical distancing became an obligation, robots were deployed in places as different as warehouses, Supermarkets and hospitals, in a broad range of activities from shelf scanning, an area in which AI has made tremendous forays, to cleaning and, of course, robotic delivery, a soon to be important component of healthcare supply chains that will in turn lead to the contactless delivery of groceries and other essentials. As for many other technologies that were on the distant horizon in terms of adoption, like telemedicine, businesses, consumers, and public authorities are now rushing to turbocharge the speed of adoption. In cities as varied as Hangzhou, Washington, D.C., and Tel Aviv, efforts are underway to move from pilot programs to large-scale operations capable of putting an army of delivery robots on the road and in the air. Chinese e-commerce giants like Alibaba and JD.com are confident that, in the coming 12 to 18 months, autonomous delivery could become widespread in China, much earlier than anticipated prior to the pandemic maximum attention is often focused on industrial robots as they are the most visible face of automation but radical acceleration is also coming in workplace automation via software and machine learning so-called robotic process automation rpa makes businesses more efficient by installing computer software that rivals and replaces the actions of a human worker this can take multiple forms ranging from microsoft's finance group consolidating and simplifying disparate reports tools and content into an automated role-based personalized portal to an oil company installing software that sends pictures of a pipeline to an ai engine to compare the pictures with an existing database and alert the relevant employees to potential problems. In all cases, RPA helps to reduce the time spent compiling and validating data and therefore cuts costs at the expense of a likely increase in unemployment, as mentioned in the economic reset section. During the peak of the pandemic, RPA won its spurs by proving its efficiency at handling surges in volume. Thus, Ratified in the post-pandemic era, the process will be rolled out and fast-tracked. Two examples prove this point. RPA solutions helped some hospitals to disseminate COVID-19 test results, saving nurses as much as three hours' work per day. In a similar vein, an AI digital device normally used to respond to consumer requests online was adapted to help medical digital platforms screen patients online for covid-19 symptoms for all these reasons bain and company a consultancy estimates that the number of companies implementing this optimization of business processes will double over the next two years a timeline that the pandemic may shorten still further 1.6.2 contact tracing contact tracking and surveillance An important lesson can be learned from the countries that were more effective in dealing with the pandemic, in particular Asian nations. Technology in general and digital in particular help. Successful contact tracing proved to be a key component of a successful strategy against COVID-19. While lockdowns are effective at reducing the reproduction rate of the coronavirus, they don't eliminate the threat posed by the pandemic. In addition, they come at injuriously high economic and societal cost. It will be very hard to fight COVID-19 without an effective treatment or a vaccine. And until then, the most effective way to curtail or stop transmission of the virus is by widespread testing, followed by the isolation of cases, contact tracing, and the quarantine of contacts exposed to the people infected. As we will see below in this process, Technology can be a formidable shortcut, allowing public health officials to identify infected people very rapidly, thus containing an outbreak before it starts to spread. Contact tracing and tracking are therefore essential components of our public health response to COVID-19. Both terms are often used interchangeably, yet they have slightly different meanings. A tracking app gains insights in real time by for example determining a person's current location through geodata via gps coordinates or radio cell location by contrast tracing consists in gaining insights in retrospect like identifying physical contacts between people using bluetooth neither offer a miracle solution that can stop in its entirety The spread of the pandemic but they make it possible to almost immediately sound the alarm permitting early intervention thus limiting or containing the outbreak particularly when it occurs in super spreading environments like a community or family gathering for reasons of convenience and ease of reading we'll merge the two and we'll use them interchangeably as articles in the press often do the most effective form of tracking or tracing is obviously the one powered by technology It not only allows backtracking of all the contacts with whom the user of a mobile phone has been in touch, but also tracking the user's real-time movements, which in turn affords the possibility to better enforce a lockdown and to warn other mobile users in the proximity of the carrier that they have been exposed to someone infected. It comes as no surprise that digital tracing has become one of the most sensitive issues in terms of public health raising acute concerns about privacy around the world. In the early phases of the pandemic, many countries, mostly in East Asia but also others like Israel, decided to implement digital tracing under different forms. They shifted from the retroactive tracing of chains of past contagion to the real-time tracking of movements in order to confine a person infected by COVID-19 and to enforce subsequent quarantines or partial lockdowns. From the outset— China, Hong Kong SAR, and South Korea implemented coercive and intrusive measures of digital tracing. They took the decision to track individuals without their consent through their mobile and credit card data and even employed video surveillance in South Korea. In addition, some economies required the mandatory wearing of electronic bracelets for travel arrivals and people in quarantine in Hong Kong SAR, to alert those individuals susceptible of being infected. Others opted for middle ground solutions where individuals placed in quarantine are equipped with a mobile number to, con- to monitor their location and be publicly identified should they breach the rules. The digital tracing solution most lauded and talked about was the Trace Together app run by Singapore's Ministry of Health. It seems to offer the ideal balance between efficiency and privacy concerns by keeping user data on the phone rather than on a server and by assigning the login anonymously. The contact detection only works with the latest versions of Bluetooth, an obvious limitation in many less digitally advanced countries where a large percentage of mobiles do not have sufficient Bluetooth capability for effective detection. Bluetooth identifies the user's physical contacts with another user of the application accurately to within about two meters, and if a risk of COVID-19 transmission is incurred, the app will warn the contact, at which point the transmission of stored data to the Ministry of Health becomes mandatory, but the contact's anonymity is maintained. Trace Together is therefore non-intrusive in terms of privacy, and its code available in open source makes it usable by any country anywhere in the world yet privacy advocates object that there are still risks if the entire population of a country downloaded the application and if there were a sharp increase in covid 19 infections then the app could end up identifying most citizens cyber intrusions issues of trust in the operator of the system and the timing of data retention pose additional privacy concerns other options exist these are mainly related to the availability of open and verifiable source codes and to guarantees pertaining to data supervision and the length of conservation common standards and norms could be adopted particularly in the eu where many citizens fear that the pandemic will force a trade-off between privacy and health but as Margrethe Festeger, the EU Commissioner for Competition, observed, I think that is a false dilemma because you can do so many things with technology that are not invasive of your privacy. I think that very often when people say it's only doable in one way, it's because they want the data for their own purposes. We have made a set of guidelines and with member states we have translated that into a toolbox so that you can do a voluntary app with decentralized storage with Bluetooth technology. You can use technology to track the virus but you can still give people the freedom of choice and in doing that, people trust that the technology is for virus tracking and not for any other purposes. I think it is essential that we show that we really mean it when we say that you should be able to trust technology when you use it, that this is not a start of a new era of surveillance, this is for virus tracking and this can help us open our societies. Again, we want to emphasize that this is a fast-moving and highly volatile situation. The announcement made in April by Apple and Google that they are collaborating to develop an app that health officials could use to reverse engineer the movements and connections of a person infected by the virus points to a possible way out for societies most concerned about data privacy and that fear digital surveillance above anything else. The person who carries the mobile would have to voluntarily download the app, and would have to agree to share the data. And the two companies made it clear that their technology would not be provided to public health agencies that do not abide by the privacy guidelines. But voluntary contact tracing apps have a problem. They do preserve the privacy of their users, but are only effective when the level of participation is sufficiently high. A collective action problem that underlines, once again, the profoundly interconnected nature of modern life beneath the individualist facade of rights and contractual obligations no voluntary contact tracing app will work if people are unwilling to provide their own personal data to the governmental agency that monitors the system if any individual refuses to download the app and therefore to withhold information about a possible infection movements and contacts everyone will be adversely affected in the end citizens will only use the app if they regard it as trustworthy which is itself dependent upon trust in the government and public authorities at the end of june 2020 the experience with tracing apps was recent and mixed fewer than 30 countries have put them in place in europe some countries like germany and italy rolled out apps based on the system developed by apple and google while other countries like france decided to develop their own app raising issues of interoperability in general technical problems and concerns with privacy seem to affect the app's use and rate of adoption just to offer some examples the uk following technical glitches and criticism from privacy activists made a u-turn and decided to replace its domestically developed contact tracing app with the model offered by apple and google norway suspended the use of its app due to privacy concerns while in france just three weeks after being launched the Stop COVID app had simply failed to take off with a very low rate of adoption 1.9 million people followed by pr- frequent decisions to uninstall it today about 5.2 billion smartphones exist in the world each with the potential to help identify who is infected where and often by whom this unprecedented opportunity may explain why different surveys conducted in the US and Europe during the lockdowns indicated that a growing number of citizens seem to favor smartphone tracking from public authorities within very specific boundaries but as always the devil is in the detail of the policy and its execution questions like whether the digital tracking should be mandatory or voluntary whether the data should be collected on an anonymized or personal basis, and whether the information should be collected privately or publicly, disclosed contain many different shades of black and white, making it exceedingly difficult to agree upon a unified model of digital tracing in a collective fashion. All these questions, and the unease they can provoke, were exacerbated by the rise of corporations tracking employees' health that emerged in the early phases of national reopenings. They will continuously grow in relevance as the corona pandemic lingers on and fears about other possible pandemics surface. As the coronavirus crisis proceeds and people start returning to the workplace, the corporate move will be towards greater surveillance. For better and for worse, companies will be watching and sometimes recording what their workforce does. The trend could take many different forms, from measuring body temperatures with thermal cameras to monitoring via an app how employees comply with social distancing. This is bound to raise profound regulatory and privacy issues, which many companies will reject by arguing that Unless they increase digital surveillance, they won't be able to reopen and function without risking new infections, and being in some cases liable. They will cite health and safety as justification for increased surveillance. The perennial concern expressed by legislators, academics, and trade unionists is that the surveillance tools are likely to remain in place after the crisis, and even when a vaccine is finally found, simply because employers don't have any incentive to remove a surveillance system once it's been installed, particularly if one of the indirect benefits of surveillance is to check on employees' productivity. This is what happened after the terrorist attacks of 11 September 2001. All around the world, new security measures like employing widespread cameras, requiring electronic ID cards, and logging employees or visitors in and out Became the norm. At that time, these measures were deemed extreme, but today they are used everywhere and considered normal. An increasing number of analysts, policymakers, and security specialists feared the same will now happen with the tech solutions put into place to contain the pandemic. They foresee a dystopian world ahead of us 1.6.3 the risk of dystopia now that information and communication technologies permeate almost every aspect of our lives and forms of social participation any digital experience that we have can be turned into a product destined to monitor and anticipate our behavior the risk of possible dystopia stems from this observation over the past few years it has nourished countless works of arts ranging from novels like the handmaid's tale to the tv series black mirror in academia it finds its expression in the research undertaken by scholars like shoshana zuboff her book surveillance capitalism warns about consumers being reinvented as data sources with surveillance capitalism transforming our economy politics society and our own lives by producing deeply anti-democratic asymmetries of knowledge and the power that accrues to knowledge over the coming months and years the trade-off between public health benefits and loss of privacy will be carefully weighed becoming the topic of many animated conversations and heated debates most people fearful of the danger posed by covid 19 will ask isn't it foolish not to leverage the power of technology to come to our rescue when we are victims of an outbreak and facing a life or death kind of situation they will then be willing to give up a lot of privacy and will agree that in such circumstances, public power can rightfully override individual rights. Then, when the crisis is over, some may realize that their country has suddenly been transformed into a place where they no longer wish to live. This thought process is nothing new. Over the last few years, both governments and firms have been using increasingly sophisticated technologies to monitor and sometimes manipulate citizens and employees. If we are not vigilant, warn the privacy advocates, the pandemic will mark an important watershed in the history of surveillance. The argument put forward by those who above all feared the grip of technology on personal freedom is plain and simple. In the name of public health, some elements of personal privacy will be abandoned for the benefit of containing an epidemic just as the terrorist attacks of 9-11 triggered greater and permanent security in the name of protecting public safety then without realizing it we will fall victims of new surveillance powers that will never recede and that could be repurposed as a political means for more sinister ends as the last few pages have exposed beyond a reasonable doubt The pandemic could open an era of active health surveillance made possible by location-detecting smartphones, facial recognition cameras, and other technologies that identify sources of infection and track the spread of a disease in quasi-real time. Despite all the precautions certain countries take to control the power of tech and limit surveillance, others are not so concerned. Some thinkers worry about how some of the quick choices we make today will in Influence our societies for years to come. The historian Yuval Noah Harari is one of them. In a recent article, he argues that we'll have a fundamental choice to make between totalitarian surveillance and citizen empowerment. It's worth exposing his argument in detail. Surveillance technology is developing at breakneck speed, and what seemed science fiction ten years ago is today's old news. As a thought experiment, consider a hypothetical government that demands that every citizen wears a biometric bracelet that monitors body temperature and heart rate 24 hours a day. The resulting data is hoarded and analyzed by government algorithms. The algorithms will know that you are sick even before you know it, and they will also know where you have been and who you have met. The chains of infection could be drastically shortened and even cut altogether. Such a system could arguably stop the epidemic in its tracks within days. Sounds wonderful, right? The downside is, of course, that this would give legitimacy to a terrifying new surveillance system. If you know, for example, that I clicked on a Fox News link rather than a CNN link that can teach you something about my political views and perhaps even my personality. But if you can monitor what happens to my body temperature, blood pressure, and heart rate as I watch the video clip, you can learn what makes me laugh, and what makes me cry, and what makes me really, really angry. It is crucial to remember that anger, joy, boredom, and love are biological phenomena just like fever and a cough. The same technology that identifies coughs could also identify laughs. If corporations and governments start harvesting our biometric data en masse, they can get to know us far better than we know ourselves, and they can then not just predict our feelings but also manipulate our feelings and sell us anything they want, be it a product or a politician. Biometric monitoring would make Cambridge Analytica's data hacking tactics look like something from the stone age imagine north korea in 2030 when every citizen has to wear a biometric bracelet 24 hours a day if you listen to a speech by the great leader and the bracelet picks up the telltale signs of anger you are done for we will have been warned some social commentators like jenny morosov go even further convinced that the pandemic heralds a dark future of techno-totalitarian state surveillance. His argument, pre- premised upon this concept of technological solutionism, put forward in a book written in 2012, posits that the tech solutions offered to contain the pandemic will necessarily take the surveillance state to the next level. He sees evidence of this in two distinct strands of solutionism in government responses to the pandemic that he has identified on the one hand there are progressive solutionists who believe that the appropriate exposure through an app to the right information about infection could make people behave in the public interest on the other hand there are punitive solutionists determined to use the vast digital surveillance infrastructure to curb our daily activities and punish any transgressions what Morozov perceives as the greatest and ultimate danger to our political systems and liberties is that the successful example of tech in monitoring and containing the pandemic will then entrench the solutionist toolkit as the default option for addressing all other existential problems from inequality to climate change. After all, it is much easier to deploy solutionist tech to influence individual behavior than it is to ask difficult questions political questions about the root causes of these crises spinoza the 17th century philosopher who resisted oppressive authority all his life famously said fear cannot be without hope nor hope without fear this is a good guiding principle to conclude this chapter along with the thought that nothing is inevitable and that we must be symmetrically aware of both good and bad outcomes dystopian scenarios are not a fatality It is true that in the post-pandemic era, personal health and well-being will become a much greater priority for society, which is why the genie of tech surveillance will not be put back into the bottle. But it is for those who govern and each of us personally to control and harness the benefits of technology without sacrificing our individual and collective values and freedoms. 2. Micro-Reset Industry and Business At the micro level, that of industries and companies, the Great Reset will entail a long and complex series of changes and adaptation. When confronted with it, some industry leaders and senior executives may be tempted to equate reset with restart, hoping to go back to the old normal and restore what worked in the past, traditions, tested procedures, and familiar ways of doing things. In short, a return to business as usual. This won't happen because it can not happen. For the most part, business as usual died from, or at the very least was infected by, COVID 19. Some industries have been devastated by the economic hibernation triggered by the lockdowns and social distancing measures. Others will have a hard time recovering lost revenues before navigating an ever narrower path to profitability caused by the economic recession engulfing the world. However, For the majority of businesses stepping into the post-coronavirus future, the key issue will be to find the opposite balance between what functioned before and what is needed now to prosper in the new normal. For these companies, the pandemic is a unique opportunity to rethink their organization and enact positive, sustainable, and lasting change, what will define the new normal of a post-coronavirus business landscape. How will companies be able to find the best possible equilibrium between past success and the fundamentals now needed to succeed in the post-pandemic era? The response is obviously dependent upon and specific to each industry and the severity with which it was hit by the pandemic. In the post-COVID-19 era, apart from those few sectors in which companies will benefit on average from strong tailwinds, most notably tech, health, and wellness, the journey will be challenging and sometimes treacherous. For some, like entertainment, travel, or hospitality, a return to a pre-pandemic environment is unimaginable in the foreseeable future, and maybe never in some cases. For others, namely manufacturing or food, it is more about finding ways to adjust to the shock and capitalize on some new trends, like digital, to thrive in the post-pandemic era. Size also makes a difference. The difficulties tend to be greater for small businesses than on average, operate on smaller cash reserves, and thinner profit margins than large companies. Moving forward, most of them will be dealing with cost-revenue ratios that put them at a disadvantage compared to bigger rivals. But being small can offer some advantages in today's world, where flexibility and celerity can make all the difference in terms of adaptation. Being nimble is easier for a small structure than for an industrial behemoth. All this said, and irrespective of their industry and the specific situation they find themselves in, almost every single company decision-maker around the world will face similar issues and will have to respond to some common questions and challenges. The most obvious ones are the following. 1. Shall I encourage remote working for those who can do it? about 30% of the total workforce in the U.S. 2. Will I reduce air travel in my business and how many face-to-face meetings can I meaningfully replace by virtual interactions? 3. How can I transform the business and our decision-making process to become more agile and to move faster and more decisively? 4. How can I accelerate the digitization and adoption of digital solutions? The macro reset discussed in Chapter 1 will translate into a myriad of micro consequences at the industry and company level. We review below some of these main trends before turning to the issue of who are the winners and losers from the pandemic and its effects on specific industries. 2.1 Micro Trends. We are still in the early days of the post-pandemic era, but powerful new or accelerating trends are already at work. For some industries, these will provide a boon, for others a major challenge. However, across all sectors, it will be up to each company to make the most of these new trends by adapting with celerity and decisiveness. The businesses that prove the most agile and flexible will be those that emerge stronger. 2.1.1 Acceleration of Digitization In the pre-pandemic era, the buzz of digital transformation was the mantra of most boards and executive committees. Digital was key. It had to be remotely implemented and was seen as a precondition to success. Since then, in the space of just a few months, the mantra has become a must, even in the case of some companies, a question of life or death. This is explicable and understandable. During confinement, we depend entirely on the internet for most things. From work and education to socialization, it is the online services that allowed us to keep a semblance of normalcy, and it is only natural that online should be the largest beneficiary of the pandemic, giving a tremendous boost to technologies and processes that enable us to do things remotely, universal broadband internet, mobile and remote payments, and workable e-government services, among others. As a direct consequence, businesses that were already operating online are bound to benefit from a lasting competitive advantage as more and diverse things and services are brought to us via our mobiles and computers, companies in sectors as disparate as e-commerce, contactless operations, digital content, robots and drone deliveries to name just a few will thrive. It is not by accident that firms like Alibaba, Amazon, Netflix, or Zoom, emerged as winners from the lockdowns. By and large, the consumer sector moved first and fastest. From the necessary contactless experience imposed upon many food and retail companies during the lockdowns to the virtual showrooms in the manufacturing industry allowing clients to browse and choose the products they like best, most business to consumer companies rapidly understood the need to offer their clients a beginning-to-end digital journey. As some lockdowns came to an end and certain economies crept back to life, similar opportunities emerged in business-to-business applications, particularly in manufacturing where physical distancing rules had to be put into place at short notice, often in challenging environments, e.g. on assembly lines. As a direct result, the IoT made impressive inroads. Some companies that have been slow in the recent pre-lockdown past to adopt IoT are now embracing it en masse with the specific objective of doing as many things as possible remotely. Equipment maintenance, management, inventory, supplier relations, or safety strategies All of these different activities can now be performed to a large extent via a computer. IoT offers companies not only the means to execute and uphold social distancing rules, but also to reduce costs and implement more agile operations. During the peak of the pandemic, O2O, online to offline, gained major traction, highlighting the importance of having both an online and offline presence and opening the door or perhaps even the floodgates, to inversion. This phenomenon of blurring the distinction between online and offline, as identified by the famous science fiction writer William Gibson, who stated, our world is averting, with the cyberspace relentlessly opening out, has emerged as one of the most potent trends of the post-COVID-19 era. The pandemic crisis accelerated this phenomenon of aversion because it both forced and encouraged us towards a digital weightless world faster than ever as more and more economic activity had no choice but to take place digitally education consulting publishing and many others we could go as far as to say that for a little while teleportation supplanted transportation most executive committee meetings board meetings team meetings brainstorm exercises and other forms of personal or social interaction had to take place remotely This new reality is captured in the market capitalization of Zoom, the video conferencing company, that skyrocketed to $70 billion in June 2020, higher at that time than that of any U.S. airline. Concurrently, large online companies like Amazon and Alibaba expanded decisively in the O2O business, particularly in food retailing and logistics. Trends like telemedicine or remote working that expanded extensively during the confinement are unlikely to retreat. For them, there will be no return to the status quo that prevailed prior to the pandemic. Telemedicine, in particular, will benefit considerably. For obvious reasons, healthcare is one of the most heavily regulated industries in the world, a fact that inevitably slows the pace of innovation. But the necessity to address the pandemic with any means available plus during the outbreak the need to protect health workers by allowing them to work remotely remove some of the regulatory and legislative impediments related to the adoption of telemedicine in the future it is certain that more medical care will be delivered remotely it will in turn accelerate the trend towards more wearable and at-home diagnostics like smart toilets capable of tracking health data and performing health analyses. Equally, the pandemic may prove to be a boon for online education. In Asia, the shift to online education has been particularly notable, with a sharp increase in students' digital enrollments, much higher valuation for online education businesses, and more capital available for edtech startups. The flip side of this particular coin will be an increase in pressure on institutions offering more traditional methods of education to validate their worth and justify their fees, as we expand upon a little later. The speed of expansion has been nothing short of breathtaking. In Britain, less than 1% of initial medical consultations took place via video link in 2019. Under lockdown, 100% are occurring remotely In another example, a leading U.S. retailer in 2019 wanted to launch a curbside delivery business. Its plan envisaged taking 18 months. During the lockdown, it went live in less than a week, allowing it to serve its customers while maintaining the livelihoods of its workforce. Online banking interactions have risen to 90% during the crisis from 10%, with no drop-off in quality and an increase in Compliance while providing a customer experience that isn't just about online banking. Similar examples abound. The social mitigation response to the pandemic and the physical distancing measures imposed during the confinement will also result in e-commerce emerging as an ever more powerful industry trend. Consumers need products and if they can't shop, they will inevitably resort to purchasing them online. As the habit kicks in, people who had never shopped online before will become comfortable with doing so, while people who were part-time online shoppers before will presumably rely on it more. This was made evident during the lockdowns. In the U.S., Amazon and Walmart hired a combined 250,000 workers to keep up with the increase in demand and build massive infrastructure to deliver online this accelerating growth of e-commerce means that the giants of the online retail industry are likely to emerge from the crisis even stronger than they were in the pre-pandemic era there are always two sides to a story as the habit of shopping online becomes more prevalent it will depress bricks and mortar high street and mall retail still further a phenomenon explored in more detail in the next sections 2.1.2. Resilient Supply Chains The very nature of global supply chains and their innate fragility means that arguments about shortening them have been brewing for years. They tend to be intricate and complex to manage. They are also difficult to monitor in terms of compliance with environmental standards and labor laws, potentially exposing companies to reputation risk and damage to their brands in light of this troubled past the pandemic has placed the last nail in the coffin of the principle that companies should optimize supply chains based on individual component costs and depending on a single supply source for critical materials summed up as favoring efficiency over resilience in the post-pandemic era it is end-to-end value optimization an idea that includes both resilience and efficiency alongside cost that will prevail. It is epitomized in the formula that just-in-case will eventually replace just-in-time. The shocks to global supply chains analyzed in the macro section will affect global businesses and smaller companies alike, but what does just-in-case mean in practice? The model of globalization developed at the end of the last century conceived and constructed by global manufacturing companies that were on the prowl for cheap labor products and components has found its limits it fragmented international production into ever more intricate bits and pieces and resulted in a system run on a just-in-time basis that has proven to be extremely lean and efficient but also exceedingly complex and as such very vulnerable Complexity brings fragility and often results in instability. Simplification is therefore the antidote, which should in turn generate more resilience. This means that the global value chains that represent roughly three-quarters of all global trade will inevitably decline. This decline will be compounded by the new reality that companies dependent upon complex just-in-time supply chains can no longer take it for granted that tariff commitments enshrined by the World Trade Organization will protect them from a sudden surge in protectionism somewhere. As a result, they will be forced to prepare accordingly by reducing or localizing their supply chain and elaborating alternative production or procurement plans to guard against a prolonged disruption. Every business whose profitability is contingent upon the principle of just in time global supply chain will have to rethink how it operates and probably sacrifice the idea of maximizing efficiency and profits for the sake of supply security and resilience. Resilience will therefore become the primary consideration for any business serious about hedging against disruption, be it disruption to a particular supplier. To a possible change in trade policy or to a particular country or region in practice this will force companies to diversify their supplier base even at the cost of holding inventories and building in redundancy it will also compel these companies to ensure that the same is true within their own supply chain they will assess resilience along their entire supply chain all the way down to their ultimate supplier and possibly even the suppliers of their suppliers. The cost of production will inevitably rise, but this will be the price to pay for building resilience. At first glance, the industries that will be the most affected because they will be the first to shift production patterns are automotive, electronics, and industrial machinery. 2.1.3 Governments and Business For all the reasons expanded upon in the first chapter, COVID-19 has rewritten many of the rules Of the game between the public and private sectors in the post pandemic era business will be subject to much greater government interference than in the past the benevolent or otherwise greater intrusion of governments in the life of companies and the conduct of their business will be country and industry dependent therefore taking many different guises outlined below are three notable forms of impact that will emerge with force in the early months of the post-pandemic period. Conditional bailouts, public procurement, and labor market regulations. For a start, all the stimulus packages being put together in Western economies to support ailing industries and individual companies will have covenants constraining in particular the borrower's ability to fire employees, buy back shares, and pay executive bonuses. In the same vein, governments, encouraged, supported, and sometimes pushed by activists and public sentiments, will target suspiciously low corporate tax bills and generously high executive rewards. They will show little patience for senior executives and investors who push companies to spend more on buybacks, minimize their tax payments, and pay huge dividends. U.S. airlines pilloried for seeking government assistance, having recently and consistently used Large amounts of company cash to pay shareholder dividends are a prime example of how this change in public attitude will be enacted by governments. In addition, in the coming months and years, a regime change might occur when policymakers take on a substantial portion of private sector default risk. When this happens, governments will want something in return. Germany's bailout of Lufthansa epitomizes this sort of situation. The government injected liquidity into the national carrier but only on the condition that the company constrains executive pay, including stock options, and commits to not paying dividends. Better alignment between public policy and corporate planning will be a particular focus of attention in terms of greater government interference. The scramble for ventilators during the peak of the pandemic, epitomizes why. In 2010, in the US, 40,000 ventilators have been ordered through a government contract but were never delivered, largely explaining the country shortage that became so apparent in March 2020. What led to this situation of scarcity? In 2012, the original company that had won the bid was bought, in somewhat dubious and obscure circumstances, by a much larger manufacturer. A publicly traded company also producing ventilators. It later emerged that the purchasing company wanted to prevent the original bidder from building a cheaper ventilator that would have undermined the profitability of its own business. This company dragged its feet before eventually canceling the contract and ultimately being acquired by a rival. None of the 40,000 ventilators were ever delivered to the US government. It is unlikely that this sort of a situation will re- reoccur in the post pandemic era as public authorities will re- will think twice about outsourcing projects that have critical public health implications or indeed critical public implications security or otherwise to private companies the bottom line the maximization of profit and the short-termism that often goes with it is rarely or at least not always consistent with the public goal of preparing for a future crisis around the world the pressure to improve the social protection and salary level of low paid employees will increase most likely in our post-pandemic world increases in the minimum wage will become a central issue that will be addressed via the greater regulation of minimum standards and a more thorough enforcement of the rules that already exist most probably companies will have to pay higher taxes and various forms of government funding like services or social care The gig economy will feel the impact of such a policy more than any other sector. Prior to the pandemic, it was already in the crosshairs of government scrutiny. In the post-pandemic era, for reasons related to the redefinition of the social contract, this scrutiny will intensify. Companies that rely on gig workers to operate will also feel the effect of more government interference, possibly even to a degree capable of undermining their financial viability as the pandemic will radically alter social and political attitudes towards gig workers governments will force their, those companies that employ them to offer proper contracts with benefits such as social insurance and health coverage the labor issue will loom large for them and if they have to employ gig workers as normal employees they will cease to be profitable their raison de might even vanish 2.1.4 stakeholder capitalism and esg over the past 10 years or so the fundamental changes that have taken place in each of the five macro categories reviewed in chapter one have profoundly altered the environment in which companies operate they have made stakeholder capitalism and environmental social and governance considerations increasingly relevant to sustainable value creation ESG can be considered as the yardstick for stakeholder capitalism. The pandemic struck at a time when many different issues ranging from climate change, activism, and rising inequalities to gender diversity and MeToo scandals had already begun to raise awareness and heighten the criticality of stakeholder capitalism and ESG considerations in today's interdependent world. Whether espoused openly or not, nobody would now deny that companies' fundamental purpose can no longer simply be the unbridled pursuit of financial profit. It is now incumbent upon them to serve all their stakeholders, not only those who hold shares. This is corroborated by early anecdotal evidence pointing to an even more positive outlook for ESG in the post-pandemic era. This can be explained on three fronts. One, the crisis will have created or reinforced an acute sense of responsibility and urgency on most issues pertaining to ESG strategies, the most important being climate change. But others, such as consumer behavior, the future of work and mobility, and supply chain responsibility, will move to the forefront of the investment process and will become an integral component of due diligence. Two. The pandemic leaves no doubt in boardrooms that the absence of esg considerations has the potential to destroy substantial value and even threaten the viability of the business esg will therefore become more fully integrated and internalized into the core strategy and governance of a company it will also alter the way in which investors assess corporate governance tax records dividend payments and renumerations will become increasingly scrutinized for fear of incurring a reputational cost when a problem arises or is made public three fostering employee and community goodwill will be key to enhancing a brand's reputation more and more companies will have to prove that they treat their workers well by welcoming improved labor practices and paying attention to health and safety as well as well-being in the workplace companies will not necessarily adhere to these measures because they are genuinely good but rather because the price of not doing so will be too high in terms of the wrath of activists both activist investors and socialist activists the conviction that esg strategies benefited from the pandemic and are most likely to benefit further is corroborated by various surveys and reports early data shows that the sustainability sector outperformed conventional funds during the first quarter of 2020 according to morningstar which compared first quarter returns for more than 200 sustainability equity funds and exchange traded funds the sustainable funds performed better by one percentage point or two on a relative basis a report from blackrock offers further evidence that companies with strong esg ratings outperformed their peers during the pandemic several analysts suggested that this outperformance might simply have reflected the reduced exposure to fossil fuels of esg funds and strategies but blackrock asserts that esg compliant companies another way to say that they adhere to the principle of stakeholder capitalism tend to be more resilient because of their holistic understanding of risk management it seems that the more susceptible the world becomes to a broad set of macro risks and issues the greater the necessity to embrace stakeholder capitalism and esg strategies the debate between those who believe that stakeholder capitalism will be sacrificed on the altar of the recovery and those who argue that it is now time to build back better is far from resolved For every Michael O'Leary, the CEO of Ryanair, who thinks that COVID-19 will put ESG considerations on the back burner for a few years, there is a Brian Chesky, CEO of Airbnb, who is committed to transforming his business into a stakeholder company. However, irrespective of anybody's opinion about the merits of stakeholder capitalism and ESG strategies and their future role in the post-pandemic era, Activism will make a difference by reinforcing the trend. Social activists and many activist investors will scrutinize closely how companies behave during the pandemic crisis. It is likely that the markets or the consumers, or both, will punish those companies that perform poorly on social issues. An essay co-written in April 2020 by Leo Strine, an influential judge in corporate America, hammers home this point about a necessary change in corporate governance. We are again paying the price for a corporate governance system that lacks focus on financial soundness, sustainable wealth creation, and the fair treatment of workers. For too long, the stock market's power over our economy has grown at the expense of other stakeholders, particularly workers, although uh, overall wealth has grown it has done so in a skewed way that is unfair to the bulk of the american workers who are primarily responsible for that increase the shift toward satisfying insatiable stock market demands has also led to increasing levels of corporate debt and economic risk for activists the decency exhibited or not by companies during the crisis will be paramount businesses will be judged for years to come by their actions critically not just in a narrow commercial sense, but viewed through a broader social lens. Few will forget, for example, that over the past 10 years, U.S. airlines spent 96% of their cash flow on share buybacks, and that in March 2020, EasyJet paid a 174 million pound dividend payout to its shareholders, including 60 million pounds to its founder. The activism to which companies may now be subjected is going beyond the traditional confines of social activism by outsiders and investor activism. With employee activism, it is expanding internally. In May 2020, just as the epicenter of the pandemic was moving from the U.S. to Latin America, Google employees, emboldened by a report published by Greenpeace, succeeded in convincing the company to no longer build custom AI and machine learning algorithms for upstream extraction in the oil and gas industry. Several such examples in the recent past illustrate rising employee activism ranging from environmental issues to social and inclusivity concerns. They provide a telling example of how different types of activists are learning to work together to further the goals to achieve a more sustainable future. Concomitantly, a sharp increase has taken place in the oldest form of activism—industrial action. In the U.S. in particular, while many white-collar workers were riding out the pandemic while working from home, many low-wage essential workers out in the trenches who had no choice but to go to work staged a wave of walkouts, strikes, and protests. As issues of worker safety, pay and benefits become more central, The agenda of stakeholder capitalism will gain in relevance and strength. 2.2 Industry Reset As a result of the lockdowns, the pandemic had immediate effect on every possible industry around the world. This impact is ongoing and will continue to be felt in the coming years. As global supply chains are reconfigured, as consumer demands change, as governments intervene more as market conditions evolve and as technology disrupts companies will be forced to continually adapt and reinvent themselves it said continuously but i'm moving on (laughs) the purpose of this section is not to offer a precise account of how each particular industry might evolve but rather to illustrate with impressionist brush strokes How some of the main features and trends associated with the pandemic will impact specific industries. 2.2.1. Social interaction and dedensification. Effects on travel and tourism, hospitality, entertainment, retail, aerospace, and even the automotive industry. The ways in which consumers interact with each other as well as what and how they consume have been significantly affected by the pandemic. Consequently, the ensuing reset in different industries will vary fundamentally depending on the nature of the economic transaction involved. In those industries where consumers transact socially and in person the first months and possibly years of the post-pandemic era will be much tougher than for those where the transaction can be a at a greater physical distance, or even virtual. In modern economies, a large amount of what we consume happens through social interaction. Travel and vacations, bars and restaurants, sporting events and retail, cinemas and theaters, concerts and festivals, conventions and conferences, museums and libraries, education, they all correspond to social forms of Consumption that represent a significant portion of total economic activity and employment. Services represent about 80% of total jobs in the U.S., most of which are social by nature. They cannot take place in the virtual world, or when they can, only in a truncated and often suboptimal form like a live orchestra performance on a screen industries that have social interaction at their core have been hit the hardest by the lockdowns among them are many sectors that add up to a very significant proportion of total economic activity and employment travel and tourism leisure sports events and entertainment for months and possibly years they will be forced to operate at reduced capacity hit by the double whammy of fears about the virus restraining consumption and the imposition of regulations aimed at countering these fears by creating more physical space between consumers. Public pressure for physical distancing will endure until a vaccine is developed and commercialized at scale, which again, according to most experts, is most unlikely to happen before the first or second quarter of 2021 at the earliest. In the intervening period, It is likely that people may travel much less for both vacation and or business. They may go less frequently to restaurants, cinemas, and theaters, and may decide that it is safer to buy online rather than physically go to the shops. For these fundamental reasons, the industries hit the hardest by the pandemic will also be the slowest to recover. Hotels, restaurants, airlines, shops, and cultural venues in particular will be forced to make Expensive alterations in the way they deliver their offerings in order to adapt to a post-pandemic new normal that will demand the implementation of drastic changes involving introducing extra space, regular cleaning, protections for staff, and technology that limits consumers' interactions with workers. I'm going to interject. I thought that's what the robots were for. Sorry. Coming back in. In many of these industries, but particularly in hospitality and retail, Small businesses will suffer disproportionately, having to walk a very fine line between surviving the closures imposed by the lockdowns or sharply reduced business and bankruptcy. Operating at reduced capacity with even tighter margins means that many will not survive. The fallout from their failure will have heartfelt ramifications both for national economies and local communities. Small businesses are the main engine of employment growth and account in most advanced economies for half of all private sector jobs if significant numbers of them go to the wall if there are fewer shops restaurants and bars in a particular neighborhood the whole community will be impacted as unemployment rises and demand dries up setting in motion a vicious and downward spiral and affecting ever greater numbers of small businesses in a particular community The ripples will eventually spread beyond the confines of the local community, affecting, albeit hopefully to a lesser extent, other more distant areas. The highly interdependent and interconnected nature of today's economy, industries, and businesses comparable to the dynamic linking the macro categories means that each has a rapid knock-on effect on the others in a myriad of different manners. Take Restaurants This sector of activity has been hit by the pandemic to such a dramatic extent that it is not even sure how the restaurant business will ever come back. As one restaurateur put it, I, like hundreds of other chefs across the city and thousands around the country, am now staring down the question of what our restaurants, our careers, our lives might look like if we can even get them back. In France and the UK, several industry voices estimate that Up to 75% of independent restaurants might not survive the lockdowns and subsequent social distancing measures. The large chains and fast food giants will. This, in turn, suggests that big businesses will get bigger while the smallest shrink or disappear. A large restaurant chain, for example, has a better chance of staying operational as it benefits from more resources and ultimately less competition in the wake of bankruptcies among smaller outfits. Small restaurants that survive the crisis will have to reinvent themselves entirely. In the meantime, in the cases of those that close their doors forever, the closure will impact not only the restaurant and its immediate staff, but also all the businesses that operate in its orbit. Suppliers, the farmers, and truck drivers. At the other end of the size spectrum, some very large companies will fall victim to the same predicament as the very small ones. Airline companies, in particular, will face similar constraints in terms of consumer demand and social distancing rules. The three-month shutdown has left carriers around the world with a cataclysmic situation of virtually zero revenues and the prospect of tens of thousands of job cuts. British Airways, for one, has announced that it will cut up to 30% of its current workforce of 42,000 employees. At the time of writing, mid-June 2020, the restart may be just about to begin. It will prove extremely challenging with a recovery expected to take years. The improvement will begin in leisure travel with corporate travel to follow. However, as discussed in the next section, consumption habits may change permanently. If many businesses decide to travel less to reduce costs and to replace physical meetings by virtual ones whenever possible, The impact on the recovery and ultimate profitability of airlines may be dramatic and lasting. Prior to the pandemic, corporate travel accounted for 30% of airline volumes but 50% of revenues thanks to higher priced seats and last-minute bookings. In the future, this is set to change, making the profitability outcome of some individual airlines highly uncertain and forcing the entire industry to reconsider the long-term structure of the global aviation market. When assessing the ultimate effect on a particular industry, the complete chain of consequences needs to take into account what happens in adjacent industries whose fate largely depends on what happens in the one upstream or at the top. To illustrate this, we take a brief look at three industries that entirely depend on the aviation sector. Airports, infrastructure and retail, planes, aerospace, and car rentals, automotive. Airports face the same challenges as airlines. The less people fly, the less they transit via airports. This in turn affects the level of consumption in the various shops and restaurants that make up the ecosystem of all international airports throughout the world. Furthermore, the experience of airports in a post COVID-19 world involving longer waiting times, highly restricted or even no hand luggage, and other potentially inconvenient social distancing measures could erode the consumer desire to travel by air for pleasure and leisure. Various trade associations warned that the implementation of social distancing policies would not only limit airport capacity to 20 to 40 percent, but would also likely render the whole experience so disagreeable as to become a deterrent. Dramatically affected by the lockdowns, airlines began to cancel or defer orders for new aircraft and to change their choice of particular model, in so doing, severely impacting the aerospace industry. As a direct consequence and for the foreseeable future, the major civil aircraft assembly plants will operate at reduced capacity with cascading effects on the entirety of their value chain and supplier network. In the longer term, changes in demand by airline companies that reevaluate their needs will lead to a complete reassessment of the production of civilian aircraft. This makes the defense aerospace sector an exception and a relatively safe haven. For nation states, the uncertain geopolitical outlook makes it imperative to maintain orders and procurement, but cash constrained governments will demand better payment terms. Like airports, car rental companies depend almost entirely on aviation volumes. Hertz, a highly indebted company with a fleet of 700,000 cars overwhelmingly idle during the lockdowns, filed for bankruptcy in May. Like for so many companies, COVID-19 proved to be the proverbial last straw. 2.2.2 Behavioral Changes, Permanent versus Transit Effects on retail, real estate, and education Some behavioral changes observed during the lockdowns are unlikely to be entirely reversed in the post-pandemic era, and some may even become permanent. How exactly this will play out remains very uncertain. A few consumption patterns may revert to long-term trend lines, comp- comparable to air of travel after 9-11, albeit at an altered pace. Others will undoubtedly accelerate like online services. Some may be postponed, like buying a car, while new permanent patterns of consumption may emerge, like purchases associated with greener mobility. Much of this is still unknown. During the lockdowns, a lot of consumers were forced to learn to do things for themselves, bake their bread, cook from scratch, cut their own hair, etc., and felt the need to spend cautiously. How entrenched will these new habits and forms of do-it-yourself and auto-consumption become in the post-pandemic era. The same could apply to students who in some countries pay exorbitant fees for higher education. After a trimester spent watching their professors on their screens, will they start questioning the high cost of education? To grasp the extreme complexity and uncertainty of this evolution in consumer behavior, Let us revert to the example of online shopping versus in-person retail. As stated, it is very likely that bricks-and-mortar stores will lose out severely in favor of online shopping. Consumers may be willing to pay a bit extra to have heavy and bulky products like bottles and household goods delivered to them. Supermarket retail space will therefore shrink coming to resemble convenience stores where shoppers go to buy relatively small quantities of specific food products. But it could also be the case that less money will be spent in restaurants, suggesting that in places where a high percentage of people's food budget traditionally went to restaurants, 60% in New York City, for example, these funds could be diverted to and benefit urban supermarkets as city dwellers rediscovered the pleasure of cooking at home. The same phenomenon may happen with the entertainment business. The pandemic may increase our anxiety about sitting in an enclosed space with complete strangers, and many people may decide that staying home to watch the latest movie or opera is the wisest option. Such a decision will benefit local supermarkets to the detriment of bars and restaurants, although the option of online takeout meal delivery services could be a lifeline for the latter. There were numerous examples of this happening in an ad hoc fashion in cities across the world during lockdowns. Could it perhaps become an important element of some restaurant's new post-COVID-19 business survival plan? There are other first-round effects that are much easier to anticipate. Cleanliness is one of them. The pandemic will certainly heighten our focus on hygiene. A new obsession with cleanliness will particularly entail the creation of new forms of packaging. We will be encouraged not to touch the products we buy. Simple pleasures like smelling a melon or squeezing a fruit will be frowned upon and may even become a thing of the past. A single attitudinal change will have many different ramifications, each having a particular effect on one specific industry but in the end, impacting many different industries through ripple effects. The following figure illustrates this point for just one change, spending more time at home. And then they got a figure, potential implications of spending more time at home. And we're going to pass that because we can't see it. The heated debate over whether or to what extent we will work remotely in the future and as a result, spend more time at home has been taking place since the pandemic started. Some analysts argue that the fundamental appeal of cities, particularly the largest ones, as vibrant centers of economic activity, social life, and creativity will endure. Others fear that the coronavirus has triggered a fundamental shift in attitudes. They claim that COVID-19 has been an inflection point and predict that all around the world, urbanites of all ages who are confronted with the shortcomings of city pollution And undersized, overpriced accommodation will decide to move to places with more greenery, more space, less pollution, and lower prices. It is too early to tell which camp will be proven right, but it is certain that even a relatively small percentage of people moving away from the biggest hubs, like New York, Hong Kong, SAR, London, or Singapore, would exercise an outsized effect on many diverse industries. Profits are always made at the margin. Nowhere is this reality more apparent than in the real estate industry and in particular in commercial real estate. The commercial real estate industry is an essential driver of global growth. Its total market value exceeds that of all stocks and bonds combined globally. Prior to the pandemic crisis, it was already suffering from an excess of supply. If the emergency practice of working remotely becomes an established and widespread habit, it is hard to imagine what companies, if any, will observe this oversupply by rushing to lease excess office space. Perhaps there will be a few investments, funds, ready to do so, but they will be the exception, suggesting that commercial real estate still has much further to fall. The pandemic will do to commercial real estate what it has done to so many other issues, both macro and micro. It will accelerate and amplify the pre-existing trend. The combination of an increase in the number of zombie companies, those that use debt to finance more debt and that have not generated enough cash over the past few years to cover their interest costs, going bankrupt and an increase in the number of people working remotely, means that there will be far fewer tenants to rent empty office buildings property developers for the most part highly leveraged themselves will then start experiencing a wave of bankruptcies with the largest and systemically important ones having to be bailed out by their respective governments in many prime cities around the world property prices will therefore fall over a long period of time puncturing the global real estate bubble that had been years in the making. To some extent, the same logic applies to residential real estate in large cities. If the trend of working remotely takes off, the combination of commuting not being a consideration any longer and the absence of job growth means that the younger generation will no longer cho- choose to afford... It says chose, <laughs> but it's choose to afford uh, residential renting or buying in expensive cities. Inevitably, prices will then fall. In addition, many will have realized that working from home is more climate-friendly and less stressful than having to commute to an office. The possibility of working remotely means that the biggest hubs that have benefited from higher economic growth than other cities or regions in their vicinity may start losing workers to the next tier of rising cities. This phenomenon could in turn create a wave of rising star cities or regions attracting people looking for a better quality of life thanks to more space at more affordable prices. Notwithstanding all of the above, perhaps the notion of widespread remote working becoming the norm is too far-fetched to happen in any meaningful manner. Haven't we so often heard that optimizing knowledge work, in reality the simplest sector to go remote, depends on carefully designed office environments the technology industry that has resisted such a move for so long by massively investing in sophisticated campuses is now changing its mind in light of the lockdown experience twitter was the first company to commit to remote work in may jack dorsey its ceo informed employees that many of them would be allowed to work from home even after the COVID-19 pandemic subsides, in other words, permanently. Other tech companies like Google and Facebook have also committed to allowing their staff to continue working remotely at least through the end of 2020. Anecdotal evidence suggests that other global firms from various industries will make similar decisions, letting part of their staff work remotely part of the time. The pandemic has made possible something that seemed unimaginable on such a scale just a few months ago. Could something similar and equally disruptive happen with higher education? Might it be possible to imagine a world in which far fewer students will receive their education on a campus? In May or June of 2020, in the midst of lockdown, students were forced to study and graduate remotely many wondering at the end of the term if they will physically return to their campus in September. At the same time, universities started to slash their budgets, pondering what this unprecedented situation might entail for their business model. Should they go online or should they not? In the pre-pandemic era, most universities offered some courses online, but always refrained from fully embracing online education. The most renowned universities refused to offer virtual degrees, fearful that this might dilute their exclusive offering, make some of their faculty redundant, and even threaten the very existence of the physical campus. In the post-pandemic era, this will change. Most universities, particularly the expensive ones in the Anglo-Saxon world, will have to alter their business model or to go bankrupt because COVID-19 has made it obsolete. If online teaching were to continue in September, and possibly beyond, Many students would not tolerate paying the same high tuition for virtual education, demanding a reduction in fees or deferring their enrollment. In addition, many potential students would question the pertinence of dispersing prohibitive costs for higher education in a world marred by high levels of unemployment. A potential solution could lie in a hybrid model. Universities would then massively expand online education while maintaining an on-campus presence for a different population of students. In a few instances, this has already been done with success, notably at Georgia Tech for an online master's degree in computer science. By going down this hybrid route, universities would expand access while reducing costs. The question though, is whether this hybrid model is scalable and reproducible for universities that do not have the resources to invest in technology and in an exclusive library of top-notch content. But the hybrid character of online education can also take a different form by combining in-person and online study within one curriculum through online chats and the use of apps for tutoring and other forms of support and help. This has the advantage of streamlining the learning experience, but the disadvantage of erasing a large aspect of social life and personal interactions on a campus. In the summer of 2020, the direction of the trend seems clear. The world of education, like for so many other industries, will become partly virtual. 2.2.3 Resilience Effects on big tech, health, and well-being banking and insurance, the automotive industry, electricity. During the pandemic, the quality of resilience or the ability to thrive in difficult circumstances gained must-have appeal and became the go-to buzzword everywhere, understandably. For those fortunate enough to find themselves in industries naturally resilient to the pandemic, the crisis was not only more bearable, but even a source of profitable opportunities at a time of distress for the majority. Three industries in particular will flourish In aggregate, in the post-pandemic era, big tech, health, and wellness. In other industries that have been hit hard by the crisis, proving resilient is what will make the difference between bouncing back from the COVID-19, sudden exogenous shock, or falling victim to it. The banking, insurance, and automotive sectors are three different examples of industries that have to build greater resilience to pass through the deep and prolonged recession caused by the health crisis. By and large, big tech was the resilient industry par excellence, for it emerged from this period of radical change as the biggest beneficiary. During the pandemic, as companies and their customers alike were forced to go digital, accelerate online plans, take up new networking tools, and start working from home, tech became an absolute necessity even among traditionally reluctant consumers. For this reason, the combined market value of the leading Tech companies hit record after record during the lockdowns, even rising back above levels before the outbreak started. For reasons expanded on elsewhere in this book, this phenomenon is unlikely to abate anytime soon, quite the opposite. Resilience, like all good practice, begins at home with us, so we can fairly assume that in the post pandemic era, we will become collectively more aware of the importance of our own physical and mental resilience. The desire driven by greater necessity to feel physically and mentally well and the need to strengthen our immune system mean that well-being and those sectors of the wellness industry positioned to help deliver them will emerge as strong winners. Also the role of public health will evolve and expand. Well-being has to be addressed holistically. We cannot be individually well in a world that is unwell. Therefore, planetary care will be as important as personal care, an equivalence that strongly supports the promotion of principles we've previously discussed, like stakeholder capitalism, the circular economy, and ESG strategies. At this company level, where the health effects of environmental degradation are increasingly clear, issues like air pollution, water management, and respect for biodiversity will become paramount. Being clean will be an industry imperative as well as an imperious necessity imposed by the consumer. Like for any other industry, digital will play a significant role in shaping the future of wellness. The combination of AI, the IoT, and sensors and wearable technology will produce new insights into personal well-being. They will monitor how we are and feel and will progressively blur the boundaries between public healthcare systems. And personalized health creation systems a distinction that will eventually break down streams of data in many separate domains ranging from our environments to our personal conditions will give us much greater control over our own health and well-being in the post-covid-19 world precise information on our carbon footprints our impact on biodiversity on the toxicity of all the ingredients we consume And the environments or spatial contexts in which we evolve will generate significant progress in terms of our awareness of collective and individual well-being industries will have to take note the collective quest for resilience also favors the sports industry closely related to well-being as it is now well understood that physical activity greatly contributes to health Sport will be increasingly recognized as a low-cost tool for a healthier society. Therefore, governments will encourage their practice, acknowledging the added benefit that sports constitute one of the best tools available for inclusivity and social integration. For a while, social distancing may constrain the practice of certain sports, which will in turn benefit the ever more powerful expansion of esports. Tech and digital are never far away. Four industries that have been grappling with a host of particular challenges posed by the pandemic crisis illustrate the diverse nature of resilience. In banking, it is about being prepared for the digital transformation. In insurance, it is about being prepared for the litigations that are coming. In automotive, it is about being prepared for the coming shortening of supply chains. In the electricity sector, it is about being... Prepared for the inevitable energy transition. The challenges are the same within each industry, and only the most resilient and better prepared companies within each will be capable of engineering a successful outcome. Because of the nature of their activity, when an economic crisis happens, banks tend to find themselves in the epicenter of the storm. With COVID 19, the risk doubled in intensity. First, banks have to prepare for the possibility that the consumer liquidity crisis morphs into a major corporate solvency crisis in which case their resilience will be severely tested. Second, they have to adjust to the ways in which the pandemic is challenging traditional banking habits, a different form of resilience that requires further capacities of adaptation. The first risk belongs to the category of traditional financial risks for which banks have had years to prepare is being dealt with through capital and liquidity buffers that have to be robust enough to withstand a major shock. In the case of the COVID-19 crisis, the test of resilience will come when the volume of non-performing loans starts rising. The situation is entirely different for the second category of risks. Almost overnight, retail, commercial, and Investment banks were faced with an often unexpected situation of having to move online. The impossibility to meet colleagues, clients, or fellow traders in person, the necessity to use contactless payment, and the exhortation from regulators to use online banking and online trading in conditions of remote working all meant that the entire banking industry had to move towards digital banking at the stroke of a pen. COVID-19 has forced all the banks to accelerate a digital transformation that is now here to stay and that has intensified cybersecurity risks which could in turn raise systemic stability implications if they are not properly mitigated. Those that have lagged behind and missed the high-speed digital train will find it very hard to adapt and to survive. In the insurance industry, many different COVID-19 related claims have been made under various types of household and commercial insurance, which include commercial property and business interruption travel life, health, and liability, like workers' compensation and employment practices liability. The pandemic poses a particular risk to the insurance industry because its existence and functioning are based upon the principle of risk diversification, which was effectively suppressed when governments decided to impose a lockdown. For this reason, hundreds of thousands of businesses around the world have been unable to successfully file claims, and are either facing months, if not years, of litigation or ruin. In May 2020, the insurance industry estimated that the pandemic could potentially cost more than $200 billion, making it one of the most expensive events in the history of the insurance industry. The cost will rise if the lockdowns go beyond the period under consideration when the forecast was made. For the insurance industry, the post-COVID-19 challenge consists in meeting the evolving protection needs of its customers by building greater resilience to a broad range of potentially uninsurable catastrophic shocks like pandemics, extreme weather events, cyber attacks, and terrorism. It has to do so while navigating an environment of exceedingly low interest rates while preparing for anticipated litigation, and the possibility of unprecedented claims and losses. In the last few years, the automotive industry has been engulfed in a rising storm of challenges, ranging from trade and geopolitical uncertainty, declining sales and CO2 penalties, to fast-changing customer demand and the multifaceted nature of the rising competition in mobility. Electric vehicles, autonomous cars, shared mobility. The pandemic has exacerbated these challenges by adding to the considerable uncertainty the industry is facing, in particular with respect to supply chains. In the early stages of the outbreak, the shortage of Chinese components had a detrimental impact on global automotive production. In the coming months and years, the industry will have to rethink its whole organization and ways of operating against the backdrop of reduced supply chains and a likely drop in vehicle sales. Throughout the successive stages of the pandemic, and in particular during the lockdowns, the electricity sector played an essential role in allowing most of the world to carry on digitally, the hospitals to run, and all essential industries to operate normally. Despite the considerable challenges posed by cyber threats and changes in demand patterns, electricity held on, proving its resilience to shocks. Moving forward, the electricity sector has to embrace the challenge of accelerating its energy transition. The combination of investments in progressive energy infrastructure like in renewables, hydrogen pipelines, and electric vehicle charging networks, and industrial cluster redevelopment like the electrification of the energy required for chemical production, has the potential to support the economic recovery by creating employment and economic activity while increasing the overall resilience of the energy sector in terms of clean energy production. The micro-reset will force every company and every industry to experiment new ways of doing business, working, and operating. Those tempted to revert to the old way of doing things will fail. Those that adapt with agility and Imagination will eventually turn the COVID-19 crisis to their advantage. This is going to be my favorite one, probably. (laughs) 3. Individual Reset Like for macro and micro effects, the pandemic will have profound and diverse consequences for all of us as individuals. For many, it has already been life-shattering to date covid 19 has forced a majority of people the world over to self-isolate from families and friends has thrown into complete disarray personal and professional plans and has deeply undermined their sense of economic and sometimes psychological and physical security we have all been reminded of our innate human fragility our frailties and our flaws this realization combined with the stress engendered by the lockdowns and the concurrent deep sense of uncertainty about what is coming next could, albeit surreptitiously, change us and the way we relate to other people and to our world. For some, what starts as a change may end up as an individual reset. 3.1. Redefining our humanness. 3.1.1. The better angels in our nature, or not. Psychologists point out that the pandemic, like most transformative agents, has the ability to bring out the best and the worst in us. Angels or devils, what is the evidence so far? At first glance, it seems the pandemic may have brought people together. In March 2020, images from Italy, the country hit hardest at that time, conveyed the impression that the collective war effort was one of the only unexpected upsides of the COVID-19 catastrophe that was engulfing the country. As the whole population went into lockdown at home, innumerable examples showed that, as a result, people not only had more time for each other, but also seemed to be kinder to one another. The outlets for this enhanced collective sensitivity ranged from famous opera singers performing for their neighbors from their balcony to a nightly ritual of the population singing health workers' praises, a phenomenon that extended to almost the whole of Europe plus diverse acts of mutual help and support for those in need. Italy, in a sense, led the way, and since throughout the period of confinement and throughout the world, there have been comparable, widespread examples of remarkable personal and social solidarity. Everywhere, simple acts of kindness, generosity, and altruism appear to be becoming the norm. In terms of what we value, the notions of cooperation, communitarian ideas the sacrifice of self-interest for the common good and caring came to the fore conversely manifestations of individual power popularity and prestige were frowned upon even eclipsing the appeal of the rich and famous that faded as the pandemic progressed one commentator observed that the coronavirus had the effect of swiftly dismantling the cult of celebrity a key feature of our modernity noting The dream of class mobility dissipates when society locks down the economy stalls the death count mounts and everyone's future is frozen inside their own crowded apartment or palatial mansion the difference between the two has never been more obvious a variety of such observations have prompted not only social commentators but also the general public itself to ponder whether the pandemic succeeded in bringing the best out of us and in so doing triggering a search for higher meaning many questions came to mind like might the pandemic give birth to better selves and to a better world will it be followed by a shift of values will we become more willing to nurture our human bonds and more intentional about maintaining our social connections simply put will we become more caring and compassionate if history is any guide natural disasters like hurricanes and earthquakes bring people together, while pandemics do the opposite. They drive them apart. The reason could be the following. Confronted with the sudden, violent, and often brief natural disaster, populations bond together and tend to recover relatively fast. By contrast, pandemics are longer-lasting, prolonged events that often elicit ongoing feelings of distrust vis-a-vis others rooted in the primal fear of dying psychologically the most important consequence of the pandemic is to generate a phenomenal amount of uncertainty that often becomes a source of angst we do not know what tomorrow will bring will there be another wave of covid19 will it affect people i love will i keep my job and such a lack of surety makes us uneasy and troubled as human beings we crave certainty hence the need for cognitive closure anything that can help erase the uncertainty and ambiguity that paralyze our ability to function normally in the context of a pandemic the risks are complex difficult to grasp and largely unknown thus confronted we are more likely to retrench rather than look to the needs of others as tends to happen with sudden natural or not disasters and in hmm, and in fact contrary to the prevailing first impressions conveyed by the media This in turn becomes a profound source of shame, a key sentiment that drives people's attitudes and reactions during pandemics. Shame is a moral emotion that equates with feeling bad, an uncomfortable sentiment that mixes regret, self-hate, and a vague sense of dishonor of not doing the right thing. Shame has been described and analyzed in countless novels and literary texts, written about historical outbreaks it can take forms as radical and horrendous as parents abandoning their children to their fate at the beginning of the decameron a series of novellas that tell the tale of a group of men and women sheltered in a villa as the black death ravaged florence in 1348 boccaccio writes that fathers and mothers were found to abandon their own children untended unvisited to their fate In the same vein, numerous literary accounts of past pandemics from Defoe's A Journal of the Plague Year to Manzoni's The Betrothed relate how so often fear of death ends up overriding all other human emotions. In every situation, individuals are forced to make decisions about saving their own lives that result in profound shame because of the selfishness of their ultimate choice. Thankfully, there are always exceptions, as we saw most poignantly during covid19 such as among the nurses and doctors whose multiple acts of compassion and courage on so many occasions went well beyond the call of their professional duty but they seem to be just that exceptions in the great influenza a book that analyzes the spanish flu's effects on the u.s at the end of world war one the historian john barry recounts that health workers could not find enough volunteers to help The more virulent the flu became, the less people were willing to volunteer. The collective sense of shame that ensued might be one of the reasons why our general knowledge about the 1918-1919 pandemic is so scant, despite the fact that in the U.S. alone it killed 12 times more people than the war itself. This perhaps also explains why, to date, so few books or plays have been written about it. Psychologists tell us that cognitive closure often calls for black and white thinking and simplistic solutions a terrain propitious for conspiracy theories and the propagation of rumors fake news mistruths and other pernicious ideas in such a context we look for leadership authority and clarity meaning that the question as to whom we trust within our immediate community and among our leaders becomes critical in consequence so too does the countervailing issue of whom we distrust in conditions of stress the appeal of cohesion and unity increases which leads us to coalesce around our clan or our group and to generally become more sociable within it but not behind it it seems only natural that our sense of vulnerability and fragility increases as does our dependence on those around us as for a baby or a frail person our attachment to those close to us strengthens with a renewed sense of appreciation for all those we love family and friends but there is a darker side to this it also triggers a rise in patriotic and nationalist sentiments with troubling religious and ethnic considerations also coming into the picture in the end this toxic mix gets the worst of us as a social group orhan palmik the turkish author who was awarded the nobel prize in literature in 2006 and whose latest novel nights of plague is due to be published at the end of 2020 recounts how people have always responded to epidemics by spreading rumors and false information and portraying the disease as foreign and brought in with malicious intent this attitude leads us to look for a, a scapegoat the commonality of all outbreaks throughout history and is the reason why unexpected and uncontrollable outbursts of violence, hearsay, panic, and rebellion are common in accounts of plague epidemics from the Renaissance on. Pome adds, The history and literature of plagues shows us that the intensity of the suffering, of the fear of death, of the metaphysical dread, and of the sense of the uncanny experienced by the stricken populace will also determine the depth of their anger and political discontent. The COVID-19 pandemic has unequivocally shown us all that we live in a world that is interconnected and yet largely bereft of solidarity between nations and often even within nations. Throughout the periods of confinement, remarkable examples of personal solidarity have surfaced, along with counterexamples of selfish behavior. At the global level, the virtue of helping each other has been conspicuous by its absence, this despite the anthropological evidence that what sets us apart as humans is the ability to cooperate with each other and form in the process something bigger and greater than ourselves. Will COVID-19 result in people withdrawing into themselves, or will it nourish their innate sense of empathy and collaboration, encouraging them towards greater solidarity? The examples of previous pandemics are not very encouraging, but this time there is a fundamental difference. We are all collectively aware that without greater collaboration we will be unable to address the global challenges that we collectively face. Put in the simplest possible terms, if, as human beings, we do not collaborate to confront our existential challenges, the environment, and the global governance freefall, among others, we are doomed. Thus, we have no choice but to summon up the better angels of our nature. 3.1.2 Moral Choices the pandemic has forced all of us, citizens and policymakers alike, willingly or not, to enter into a philosophical debate about how to maximize the common good in the least damaging way possible. First and foremost, it prompted us to think more deeply about what the common good really means. Common good is that which benefits society as a whole, but how do we decide collectively what is best for us as a community? Is it about preserving GDP growth and economic activity at any cost to try to prevent unemployment rising? Is it about caring for the most fragile members of our community and making sacrifices for one another? Is it something in between, and if it is, what trade-offs are involved? Some schools of philosophical thought, like libertarianism, for which individual freedom matters the most, and utilitarianism, for which the pursuit of the best outcome for the greatest number makes more sense may even dispute that the common good is a cause worth pursuing but can conflicts between competing moral theories be resolved the pandemic brought them to a boil with furious arguments between opposing camps many decisions framed as cold and rational driven exclusively by economic political and social considerations are in fact deeply influenced by moral philosophy the endeavor to find a theory that is capable of explaining what we should do. Actually, almost every single decision related to how best to deal with the pandemic could be reframed as an ethical choice, reflecting that, in almost all instances, human practices labor under moral considerations. Shall I give to those who have nothing and show empathy to those whose opinion differs from mine? Is it all right to light to the public for some greater good? Is it acceptable not to help my neighbors who are infected with COVID-19? Shall I lay off a number of employees in the hope of keeping my business afloat for the others? Is it okay to escape to my holiday home for my own enhanced safety and comfort, or should I offer it to someone who's needs exceeds mine shall i ignore the confinement order to assist a friend or family member every single decision big or small has an ethical component and the way in which we respond to all these questions is what eventually enables us to aspire to a better life like all notions of moral philosophy the idea of common good is elusive and contestable since the pandemic started it has provoked various debates about whether to use a utilitarian calculus when trying to tame the pandemic or to stick to the sacrosanct principle of sanctity of life nothing crystallizes the issue of ethical choice more than the debate that raged during the initial lockdowns about the trade-off between public health and the hit to growth as we said earlier almost all the economists have debunked the myth that sacrificing a few lives will save the economy but irrespective of these experts judgment the debate and arguments went on in the u.s in particular but not exclusively some policymakers took the line in that it was justifiable to value the economy over life endorsing a policy choice that would have been unimaginable in asia or europe where such pronouncements would have been tantamount to committing political suicide This realization probably explains UK Prime Minister Johnson's hasty retreat from an initial policy advocating herd immunity, often portrayed by experts and the media as an example of social Darwinism. The prioritization of business over life has a long tradition, running from the merchants of Siena during the Great Plague to those of Hamburg who tried to conceal the cholera outbreak of 1892. However, it seems almost incongruous that it would remain alive today with all the medical knowledge and scientific data we have at our disposal. The argument put forward by some groups, like Americans for Prosperity, is that recessions kill people. This, while undoubtedly true, is a fact that is itself rooted in policy choices informed by ethical considerations. In the U.S., Recessions do indeed kill a lot of people because the absence or limited nature of any social safety net makes them life-threatening. How? When people lose their jobs with no state support and no health insurance, they tend to die of despair through suicides, drug overdoses, and alcoholism, as shown extensively analyzed by Anne Case and Angus Deaton. Economic recessions also provoke deaths outside of the U.S., but policy choices in terms of health insurance and worker protection can ensure that there are considerably fewer this is ultimately a moral choice about whether to prioritize the qualities of individualism or those that favor the destiny of the community it is an individual as well as a collective choice that can be expressed through elections but the example of the pandemic shows that highly individualistic societies are not very good at expressing solidarity in the immediate post-pandemic era following the first wave in early 2020 and at a time when many economies around the world are sliding into deep recessions the perspective of more severe lockdowns seems politically inconceivable even the richest countries cannot afford to endure a lockdown indefinitely not even a year or so The consequences, particularly in terms of unemployment, would be horrific, resulting in a dramatic fallout for society's poorest and individual well-being in general. As the economist and philosopher Amartya Sen put it, the presence of disease kills people and the absence of livelihood also kills people. Therefore, now that testing and contact tracing capabilities are widely available, many individual and collective decisions will of necessity involve complex cost-benefit analyses and even sometimes a cruel utilitarian calculus every policy decision will become an exceedingly delicate compromise between saving as many lives as possible and permitting the economy to run as fully as possible bioethicists and moral philosophers often argue among themselves about counting life years lost or saved rather than just the number of deaths that occurred or that could have been avoided peter singer a professor of bioethics and author of the life you can save is a prominent voice among those who adhere to the theory that we should take into account the number of life years lost not just the number of lives lost he gives the following example In Italy, the average age of those dying of COVID-19 is almost 80 years, which could prompt us to ask the following question. How many years of life were lost in Italy, considering that many of the people who died from the virus were not only elderly, but also had underlying medical conditions? Some economists roughly estimate that Italians lost perhaps an average of three years of life, a very different outcome as compared to the Forty or six years of life lost when numerous young people perish as the result of war. The purpose of this example is this. Today almost everyone the world over has an opinion as to whether the lockdown in her or his country was too severe or not severe enough, whether it should have been shortened or extended, whether it was appropriately put into place or not, whether it was properly enforced or not, often framing the issue as an objective fact. In reality, all these judgments and pronouncements that we constantly make are determined by underlying ethical considerations that are eminently personal. Simply put, what we expose as facts or opinions are moral choices that the pandemic has laid bare. They are made in the name of what we think is right or wrong, and therefore define us as who we are. Just one simple example to illustrate the point. The WHO and most national health authorities recommend that we wear a mask in public. What has been framed as an epidemiological necessity and an easy risk-mitigating measure has turned into a political battlefield. In the U.S. and also, but less so in a few other countries, the decision to wear a mask or not has become politically charged since it is considered as an infringement to personal freedom. But behind the political declaration, refusing to wear a mask in public is a moral choice, as indeed is the decision to wear one. Does this tell us something about the moral principles that underpin our choices and decisions? Probably yes. The pandemic also compelled us to reconsider the critical importance of fairness, a highly subjective notion, yet essential to societal harmony. Taking fairness into consideration reminds us that some of the most basic assumptions we make in economics have a moral element embedded in them. Should, for example, fairness or justice be considered when looking at the laws of supply and demand? And what does the response tell us about ourselves? This quintessential moral issue came to the fore during the most acute phase of the pandemic in early 2020, when shortages of some basic necessities like oil and toilet paper and critical supplies for dealing with COVID-19 like masks and ventilators started to occur. What was the right response? Let the laws of supply and demand work their magic so that prices rise high enough and clear the market, or rather regulate demand or even prices for a little while. In a famous paper written in 1986, Daniel Kahneman and Richard Thaler who were subsequently awarded the Nobel Prize in Economics, explored this issue and concluded that rising prices in an emergency is simply unacceptable from a societal standpoint because it will be perceived as unfair. Some economists may argue that higher prices triggered by supply and demand are effective in so far as they discourage panic buying, but most people would consider this an issue that has little to do with economics and more to do with a sentiment of fairness, hence of moral judgment. Most companies understand this. Raising the price of a good that is needed in an extreme situation like a pandemic, particularly if it is a mask or hand sanitizer, is not only offensive but flies in the face of what is considered morally and socially acceptable. For this reason, Amazon prohibited price gouging on its site, and large retail chains responded to the shortages not by raising the price of the goods, but by limiting the quantity that each customer could buy. It is hard to tell whether these moral considerations constitute a reset, and whether they will have a long-lasting post-coronavirus effect on our attitudes and behaviors. At the very least, we could assume that we are now more individually aware of the fact that our decisions are infused with values. And informed by moral choices it might follow that if but it is a big if in the future we abandon the posture of self-interest that pollutes so many of our social interactions we may be able to pay more attention to issues like inclusivity and fairness Oscar Wilde had already highlighted this problem in 1892 when depicting a cynic as a man who knows the price of everything and the value of nothing. 3.2. Mental Health and Well-Being For years now, an epidemic of mental health has engulfed much of the world. The pandemic has already made it worse and will continue to do so. Most psychologists, and certainly all those we talk to, seem to concur with the judgment expressed in May 2020 by one of their peers. The pandemic has had a devastating effect on mental health. Unlike physical illness, people with mental health issues often have wounds that are invisible to a non-professional's naked eye. Yet in the past decade, mental health specialists report an explosion of mental health problems ranging from depression and suicide to psychosis and addictive disorders. In 2017, an estimated 350 million people around the globe were suffering from depression. At that time, the WHO predicted that depression would become the second main cause of disease burden globally by 2020 and that it would overtake ischemic heart disease as the leading cause of disease burden by 2030. In the US, the CDC estimated in 2017 that depression affected more than 26% of adults. Approximately 1 in 20 report moderate to severe symptoms. At that time, it also predicted that 25% of American adults would suffer from mental illness during the year and almost 50% would develop at least one mental illness during their lifetime. Similar figures, but maybe not as severe, and trends exist in most countries around the world. In the workplace, the issue of mental health has become one of the big elephants in the corporate room. The epidemic of work-related stress, depression, and anxiety seems to be continuously getting worse. As a revealing example, in 2017-2018 in the UK, stress, depression, and anxiety accounted for more than half, 57%, of total working days lost due to ill health. For many people, traversing the COVID-19 pandemic will be defined as living a personal trauma the scars inflicted may last for years to start with in the early months of the outbreak it was all too easy to fall victim to the biases of availability and salience these two mental shortcuts caused us to obsess and ruminate about the pandemic and its dangers availability makes us rely on immediate examples that come to mind when evaluating something and salience predisposes us to focus on things that are more prominent and emotionally striking. For months, COVID-19 became almost the only news, news that was inevitably almost exclusively bad. Relentless reports of deaths, infectious cases, and all the other things that might go wrong, together with emotionally charged images, allowed our collective imaginations to run riot in terms of worry about ourselves and our closest loved ones such an alarming atmosphere had disastrous effects on our mental well-being furthermore media amplified anxiety can be very contagious all this fed into a reality that for so many amounted to personal tragedy whether defined by the economic impact of income loss and job losses and or the emotional impact of domestic violence acute isolation And loneliness or the inability to properly grieve for deceased loved ones humans are inherently social beings companionship and social interactions are a vital component of our humanness if deprived of them we find our lives turned upside down social relations are to a significant extent obliterated by confinement measures and physical or social distancing And in the case of COVID-19 lockdowns, this occurred at a time of heightened anxiety when we needed them most. Rituals that are inherent to our human condition, handshakes, hugs, kisses, and many others, were suppressed. Loneliness and isolation resulted. For now, we know neither whether nor when we might return completely to our old way of life. At any stage of the pandemic, but particularly towards the end of lockdowns, Mental discomfort remains a risk even after the period of acute stress has passed, something that psychologists have called the third quarter phenomenon, in reference to people who live in isolation for a protracted period of time, like polar explorers or astronauts. They tend to experience problems and tensions towards the end of their mission. Like these people, but on a planetary scale, our collective sense of mental well-being has taken a very severe knock having dealt with the first wave we are now anticipating another that may or may not come and this toxic emotional mix risks producing a collective state of anguish the inability to make plans or engage in specific activities that used to be intrinsic parts of our normal life and vital sources of pleasure like visiting family and friends abroad planning ahead for the next term at university applying for a new job has the potential to leave us confused and demoralized. For many people, the strains and stresses of the immediate dilemmas that follow the end of lockdowns will last for months. Is it safe to go on public transport? Is it too risky to go to a favorite restaurant? Is it appropriate to visit this elderly family member or friend? For a long time to come, these very banal decisions will be tainted with a sense of dread, particularly for those who are vulnerable because of their age or health condition. At the time of writing, June 2020, the impact of the pandemic in terms of mental health cannot be quantified or assessed in a generalized way, but the broad contours are known. In a nutshell, 1. Individuals with pre-existing mental health conditions like depression will increasingly suffer from anxiety disorders. 2. Social distancing measures, even after they've been rolled back, will have worsened mental health issues. 3. In many families, the loss of income consecutive to unemployment will plunge people into the death of despair phenomenon. 4. Domestic violence and abuse, particularly against women and children, will increase as long as the pandemic endures. And 5. Vulnerable people and children, those in care, the socioeconomically disadvantaged, and the disabled in need of an above-average level of support will be particularly at risk of increased mental distress. Let us review below some of these in greater detail. For many, an explosion of mental problems occurred during the first months of the pandemic and will continue to progress in the post-pandemic era. In March 2020, at the onset of the pandemic, a group of researchers published a study in The Lancet that found that confinement measures produced a range of severe mental health outcomes such as trauma, confusion, and anger. Although avoiding the most severe mental health issues, a large portion of the world population is bound to have suffered stress to various degrees. First and foremost, it is among those already prone to mental health issues that the challenges inherent in the response to the coronavirus, lockdowns, isolation, anguish, will be exacerbated. Some will weather the storm, but for certain individuals, a diagnostic of depression or anxiety could escalate into an acute clinical episode. There are also significant numbers of people who for the first time presented symptoms of serious mood disorder like mania, signs of depression, and various psychotic experiences. These were all triggered by events directly or indirectly associated with the pandemic and the lockdowns, such as isolation and loneliness fear of catching the disease, losing a job, bereavement, and concerns about family members and friends. In May 2020, the National Health Service, England's clinical director for mental health, told a parliamentary committee that the demand for mental health care would increase significantly once the lockdown ended and would see people needing treatment for trauma for years to come. There is no reason to believe that the situation will be very different elsewhere. Domestic violence has risen during the pandemic. It remains difficult to measure the precise increase because of the high number of cases that remain unreported, but it is nonetheless clear that the rise in incidences was fueled by a combination of anxiety and economic uncertainty. With the lockdowns, all the requisite ingredients for an increase in domestic violence coalesced. Isolation from friends, family, and employment— the occasion for constant surveillance by and physical proximity to an abusive partner, often themselves under more stress, and limited or no options for escape. The conditions of lockdown magnified existing abusive behaviors, leaving little or no respite for victims and their children outside of the home. Projections from the United Nations Population Fund indicate that if domestic violence increases by 20% during periods of lockdown, there would be an additional 15 million cases of intimate partner violence in 2020 for an average lockdown duration of 3 months, 31 million cases for an average lockdown of 6 months, 45 million for an average lockdown of 9 months, and 61 million if the average lockdown period were to last 1 year. These are global projections inclusive of all 193 UN member states and represent the high levels of underreporting characteristic of gender-based violence. All told, they total an additional 15 million cases of gender-based violence for every 3 months a lockdown continues. It is hard to predict how domestic violence will evolve in the post-pandemic era. Conditions of hardship will make it more likely, but much will depend on how individual countries control the two pathways through which domestic violence occurs. One, the reduction in prevention and protection efforts, social services and care, and two, the concomitant increase in the incidence of violence. This subchapter concludes with a point that may seem anecdotal, but that has gained some relevance in an era of relentless online meetings that could expand in the foreseeable future, our video conversations and mental well-being bad bedfellows. During the lockdowns, video conversations were for many a personal and professional lifesaver, allowing us to maintain human connections, long-distance relationships, and connections with our colleagues, but they have also generated a phenomenon of mental exhaustion popularized as Zoom fatigue, a condition that applies to the use of any video interface. During the lockdowns, screens and videos were so widely solicited for communication purposes that this equated to a new social experiment conducted at scale. The conclusion our brains find it difficult and sometimes unsettling to conduct virtual re- interactions, especially if and when such interactions account for the quasi totality of our professional and personal exchanges. We are social animals for whom the many minor and often nonverbal cues that normally occur during physical social interactions are vital in terms of communication and mutual understanding. When we talk to someone in the flesh, we don't only concentrate on the words they are saying, but also focus on a multitude of infralanguage signals that help us make sense of the exchange we are having. Is the lower body of the person facing us or turned away? What are their hands doing? What's the tone of their general body language? How is the person breathing? A video conversation makes the interpretation of these nonverbal cues charged with subtle meaning impossible and it forces us to concentrate exclusively on words and facial expressions sometimes altered by the quality of the video on a virtual conversation we have nothing other than intense prolonged eye contact which can easily become intimidating or even threatening particularly when a hierarchical relationship exists this problem is magnified by the gallery view when the central vision of our brains risks being challenged by the sheer number of people on view. There is a threshold beyond which we cannot decode so many people at once. Psychologists have a word for this, continuous partial attention. It is as if our brain were trying to multitask, in vain of course. At the end of the call, the constant search for nonverbal cues that cannot be found simply overwhelms our brain. We get the feeling of being drained of energy and left with a sense of profound dissatisfaction. This, in turn, negatively affects our sense of mental well-being. The impact of the COVID-19 has given rise to a wider and deeper array of mental health problems, affecting greater numbers of the population, many of whom might have been spared in the immediate future had it not been for the pandemic. Viewed in those terms, the coronavirus has reinforced, not reset, mental health issues. However, what the pandemic has achieved with respect to mental health, as in so many other domains, is the acceleration of a pre existing trend. With this has come heightened public awareness of the severity of the problem. Mental health, the most significant single factor affecting people's level of satisfaction with their lives was already on the radar screen of policymakers in the post-pandemic era these issues may now be given the priority they deserve this indeed would constitute a vital reset 3.3 changing priorities much has already been written about the way in which the pandemic might change us how we think about things and how we do things yet we are still in the very early days we don't even know yet whether the pandemic is behind us and in the absence of data and research, all conjectures about our future selves are highly speculative. Nonetheless, we can foresee some possible changes that dovetail with the macro and micro issues reviewed in this book. COVID 19 may compel us to address our inner problems in ways we would not have previously considered. We may start asking ourselves some fundamental questions that would never have arisen without the crisis and the lockdowns and by doing so, reset our mental map. Existential crises like the pandemic confront us with our own fears and anxieties and afford great opportunities for introspection. They force us to ask questions that truly matter and can also make us more creative in our response. History shows that new forms of individual and collective organization often emerge after economic and social depressions. We have already provided examples of past pandemics that radically changed the course of history. In times of adversity, innovation often thrives. Necessity has long been recognized as the mother of invention. This may prove to be particularly true for the COVID-19 pandemic that forced many of us to slow down and gave us more time to reflect, away from the pace and frenzy of our normal world with the very significant exception, of course, of the dozens of millions of heroic workers in healthcare, grocery stores and supermarkets, and parents with young children or people caring for elderly or handicapped relatives needing constant attention. Offering as it did the gifts of more time, greater stillness, more solitude, even if an excess of the latter sometimes resulted in loneliness, The pandemic provided an opportunity to think more deeply about who we are, what really matters, and what we want, both as individuals and as a society. This period of enforced collective reflection could give rise to a change in behavior that will in turn trigger a more profound reconsideration of our beliefs and convictions. This could result in a shift in our priorities that would in turn affect our approach to many aspects of our everyday lives how we socialize, take care of our family members and friends, exercise, manage our health, shop, educate our children, and even how we see our position in the world. Increasingly, obvious questions may come to the fore, like, do we know what is important? Are we too selfish and overfocused on ourselves? Do we give too great a priority and excessive time to our career? Are we slaves to consumerism? In the post-pandemic era, thanks to the pause for thought it Offers some of us, our responses may have evolved as compared to what our pre pandemic selves might have answered. Let us consider in an arbitrary and non exclusive fashion some of these potential changes whose likelihood of occurrence it seems to us, even if not very high, is nonetheless greater than commonly assumed. 3.3.1 Creativity. It may be a cliche to say that what doesn't kill us makes us stronger, but Friedrich Nietzsche had a point. Not everybody who survives a pandemic emerges from it stronger, far from it. However, a few individuals do, with actions and achievements that may sound marginal at the time but with hindsight are seen to have made a tremendous impact. Being creatively minded helps. So does being in the right place, like the right industry, at the right time. There is little doubt, for example, that in the next few years, we will witness an explosion of creativity among startups and new ventures in the digital and biotechnological spaces. The pandemic has blown following winds into the sails of both, suggesting that we will see a good deal of progress and much innovation on the part of the most creative and original individuals in these sectors. The most gifted entrepreneurs will have a field day. The same may well happen in the realms of science and the arts the illustrious past episodes corroborate that creative characters thrive in lockdown isaac newton for one flourished during the plague when cambridge university had to shut down in the summer of 1665 after an outbreak newton went back to his family home in lincolnshire where he stayed for more than a year during this period of forced isolation described as ennis mirabilis a remarkable year he had an outpouring of creative energy that formed the foundation for his theories of gravity and optics and in particular the development of the inverse square law of gravitation there was an apple tree beside the house and the idea came to him as he compared the fall of an apple to the motion of the orbital moon A similar principle of creativity under duress applies to literature and is at the origin of some of the most famous literary works in the Western world. The scholars argue that the closure of theatres in London forced by the plague of 1593 helped Shakespeare turn to poetry. This is when he published Venus and Adonis, a popular narrative poem in which the goddess implores a kiss from a boy to drive infection from the dangerous year. A few years later, at the beginning of the 17th century, theaters in London were more often closed than open because of the bubonic plague. An official rule stipulated that theater performances would have to be canceled when the deaths caused by the plague exceeded 30 people per week. In 1606, Shakespeare was very prolific precisely because theaters were closed by the epidemic and his troupe couldn't play. In just one year, he wrote King Lear, Macbeth, and Antony and Cleopatra. The Russian author Alexander Pushkin had a similar experience. In 1830, following a cholera epidemic that had reached Nizhny Novgorod, he found himself in lockdown in a provincial estate. Suddenly, after years of personal turmoil, he felt relieved, free, and happy. The three months he spent in quarantine were the most creative and productive of his life. He finished Eugene Onegin, his masterpiece, and wrote a series of sketches, one of which was called A Feast During the Plague. We cite these historical examples of flourishing personal creativity in some of our greatest artists during a plague or pandemic, not to minimize or distract from the catastrophic financial impact that the COVID-19 crisis is having on the world of culture and entertainment, but instead to provide a glimmer of hope and a source of inspiration. Creativity is at its most abundant in the cultural and artistic sectors of our societies and history has shown that this very creativity can prove a major source of resilience. A multitude of such examples exist. This is an unusual form of reset, but it should not surprise us. When devastating things happen, creativity and ingenuity often thrive. 3.3.2 Time In joshua ferris novel 2007 when then we came to the end one character observes some days felt longer than other days some days felt like two whole days this happened on a worldwide scale as a result of the pandemic it altered our sense of time in the midst of their respective lockdowns many people made reference to the fact that the days in confinement seemed to last an eternity and yet the weeks went by surprisingly fast With, again, the fundamental exception of those who were in the trenches, all the essential workers we have already mentioned, many people in lockdown felt the sameness of the days, with every day similar to the previous and to the next, and barely any distinction between the working days and the weekend. It is as if time had become amorphous and undifferentiated, with all the markers and normal divisions gone. In a fundamentally different context but within a similar type of experience prisoners who face the harshest and most radical form of confinement confirm this the days drag and then you wake up and a month has passed and you think where the hell has that gone victor sergey a russian revolutionary who was repeatedly jailed said the same there are swift hours and very long seconds Could these observations compel some of us to reconsider our relationship with time, to better recognize how precious it is and not let it slip by unnoticed? We live in an era of extreme velocity where everything goes much faster than ever because technology has created a culture of immediacy. In this real-time society where everything is needed and wanted right away, we constantly feel pressed for time and have the nagging feeling that the pace of life is ever-increasing. Might the experience of the lockdowns alter this? Could we experience at our own individual level the equivalent of what just-in-time supply chains will do in the post-pandemic era, a suppression of time acceleration for the benefit of greater resilience and peace of mind? Might the need to become more psychologically resilient force us to slow down and become more mindful of the passing time? Maybe. This could be one of the unexpected upsides of COVID-19 and the lockdowns. It made us more aware and sensitive about the great markers of time, the precious moments spent with friends and our families, the seasons and nature, the myriad of small things that require a bit of time, like talking to a stranger, listening to a bird, or admiring a piece of art, but that contribute to well-being. the reset, in the post-pandemic era, we might have a different appreciation of time, pursuing it for greater happiness. 3.3.3 consumption ever since the pandemic took hold many column inches and analyses have been dedicated to the impact that covid 19 will have on our consumption patterns a substantial number of them state that in the post-pandemic era we will become more conscious of the consequences of our our choices and habits and will decide to repress some forms of consumption At the other end of the spectrum, a few analysts forecast revenge consumption, taking the form of a surge in spending after the lockdown's end, predicting a strong revival of our animal spirits and a return to the situation that prevailed before the pandemic revenge consumption hasn't happened yet maybe it won't happen at all and if the sentiment of self-restraint kicks in first the underlying argument supporting this hypothesis is the one to which we referred in this chapter on the environmental reset the pandemic has acted as a dramatic eye-opener to the public at large on the severity of the risks related to environmental degradation and climate change heightened awareness of and acute concerns about inequality combined with the realization that the threat of social unrest is real, immediate, and on our doorstep, might have the same effect. When a tipping point is reached, extreme inequality begins to erode the social contract and increasingly results in antisocial, even criminal, behavior often directed at property. In response, consumption patterns must be seen to be changing. How might this play out? Conspicuous consumption could fall from favor. Having the latest, most up-to-date model of whatever will no longer be a sign of status but will be thought of as, at best, out of touch and at worst, downright obscene. Positional signaling will be turned upside down. Projecting a message about oneself through a purchase and flaunting expensive stuff may simply become passe. Put in simple terms, in a post-pandemic world beset by unemployment, insufferable inequalities and angst about the environment the ostentatious display of wealth will no longer be acceptable the way forward may be inspired by the example of japan together with a few other countries economists constantly worry about the possible japanification of the world to which we referred in the macro section but there is a much more positive japanification story that gives us a sense of where we may want to go with respect to consumption. Japan possesses two distinctive features that are intertwined. It has one of the lowest levels of inequality among high-income countries, and it has since the burst of the speculative bubble in the late 1980s had a lower level of conspicuous consumption that sets it apart. Today, the positive value of minimalism made viral by the Marie Kondo series The lifelong pursuit of finding meaning and purpose in life, Ikigai, and the importance of nature and the practice of forest bathing, Shirin-yoku, are being emulated in many parts of the world even though they all espouse a relatively more frugal Japanese lifestyle as compared to more consumerist societies. A similar phenomenon can be observed in Nordic countries where Conspicuous consumption is frowned upon and repressed, but none of this makes them less happy. Quite the opposite. As psychologists and behavioral economists keep reminding us, overconsumption does not equate to happiness. This might be another personal reset. The understanding that conspicuous consumption or excessive consumption of any kind is neither good for us nor for our planet and the subsequent realization that a sense of personal fulfillment and satisfaction need not be reliant on relentless consumption, perhaps quite the opposite. 3.3.4. Nature and Well-Being The pandemic has proven to be a real-time exercise in how to manage our anxiety and fears during a period of extraordinary confusion and uncertainty. One clear message has emerged from this. Nature is a formidable antidote to many of today's ills. Recent and abundant research explains incontrovertibly why it is so. Neuroscientists, psychologists, medical doctors, biologists, microbiologists, specialists of physical performance, economists, social scientists, all in their respective fields can now explain why nature makes us feel good, how it eases physical and psychological pain, and why it is associated with so many benefits in terms of physical and mental well-being. Conversely, they can also show why being separated from nature in all its richness and variety, wildlife, trees, animals, and plants, negatively affects our minds, our bodies, our emotional lives, and our mental health. COVID-19 and the health authorities' constant reminders to walk or exercise every day to keep in shape place these considerations front and center. So do the myriads of individual testimonies during the lockdowns showing how much people in cities were longing for greenery—a forest, a park, a garden, or just a tree. Even in the countries with the strictest lockdown regimes like France, health authorities insisted on the need to spend some time outside every day. In the post-pandemic era, far fewer people will ignore the centrality and the essential role of nature in their lives. The pandemic made this awareness possible at scale since now almost everybody in the world knows about this this will create more profound and personal connections at an individual level with the macro points we made earlier about the preservation of our ecosystems and the need to produce and consume in ways that are respectful of the environment we now know that without access to nature and all it has to offer in terms of biodiversity are Potential for physical and mental well-being is gravely impaired. Throughout the pandemic, we were reminded that rules of social distancing, head washing, and mask wearing, plus self-isolation for the most vulnerable people, are the standard tools to protect ourselves from COVID-19. Yet two other essential factors that are strongly contingent upon our exposure to nature also play a vital role in our physical resilience to the virus. Immunity and Inflammation Both contribute to protecting us, but immunity decreases with age while inflammation increases. To improve our chances of resisting the virus, immunity must be boosted and inflammation suppressed. What part does nature play in this scenario? She is the leading lady. The science now tells us. The low level of constant inflammation experienced by our bodies leads to all sorts of diseases and disorders ranging from cardiovascular conditions to depression and reduced immune capabilities. This residual inflammation is more prevalent among people who live in cities, urban environments, and industrialized areas. It is now established that a lack of connection with nature is a contributing factor to greater inflammation, with studies showing that just two hours spent in a forest can alleviate inflammation by lowering cytokine levels, a marker of inflammation. All this boils down to lifestyle choices, not only the time we spend in nature, but also what we eat, how we sleep, how much we exercise. These are choices that point to an encouraging observation. Age does not have to be a fatality. Ample research shows that together with nature, diet, and physical exercise can slow, even sometimes reverse, our biological decline. There is nothing fatalistic about it. Exercise, nature, unprocessed food, they all have the dual benefit of improving immunity and suppressing inflammation. This dovetails with the point we just made about consumption habits it would be surprising if all this newly found evidence does not lead to greater awareness about responsible consumption at the very least the direction of the trend less depredation more sustainability seems clear the reset for individuals the pandemic has drawn our attention to the importance of nature going forward paying more attention to our natural assets will progressively become paramount conclusion we're almost done in june 2020 barely six months since the pandemic started the world is in a different place within this short time frame covid19 has both triggered momentous changes and magnified default lines that already beset our economies and societies rising inequalities a widespread sense of unfairness deepening geopolitical divides, political polarization, rising public deficits and high levels of debt, ineffective or non-existent global governance, excessive financialization, environmental degradation. These are some of the major challenges that existed before the pandemic. The corona crisis has exacerbated them all. Could the COVID-19 debacle be the lightning before the thunder? Could it have the force to ignite a series of profound changes? We cannot know what the world will be like in ten months' time, even less what it will resemble in ten years from now, but what we do know is that unless we do something to reset today's world, tomorrow's will be profoundly stricken. In Gabriel Garcia Marquez's Chronicle of a Death foretold, an entire village foresees a looming catastrophe and yet none of the villagers seem able or willing to act to prevent it until it's too late we do not want to be that village to avoid such a fate without delay we need to set in motion the great reset this is not a nice to have but an absolute necessity failing to address and fix the deep-rooted ills of our societies and economies could heighten the risk that as throughout history ultimately a reset will be imposed by violent shocks like conflicts and even revolutions it is incumbent upon us to take the bull by the horns the pandemic gives us this chance it represents a rare but narrow window of opportunity to reflect reimagine and reset our world the deep crisis provoked by the pandemic has given us plenty of opportunities to reflect on how our economies and societies work and the ways in which they don't the vert- seems clear we need to change we should change but can we will we learn from the mistakes we made in the past will the pandemic open the door to a better future will we get our global house in order simply put will we put into motion the great reset resetting is an ambitious task perhaps too ambitious but we have no choice but to try our utmost to achieve it it's about making the world less divisive less polluting less destructive more inclusive more equitable and fairer than we left it in the pre-pandemic era doing nothing or too little is to sleepwalk towards ever more social inequality economic imbalances injustice and environmental degradation failing to act would equate to letting our world become meaner more divided more dangerous more selfish and simply unbearable For large segments of the globe's population to do nothing is not a viable option that said the great reset is far from a done deal some may resist the necessity to engage in it fearful of the magnitude of the task and hopeful that the sense of urgency will subside and the situation will soon get back to normal the argument for passivity goes like this we have been through similar shocks pandemics harsh recessions geopolitical divides and social tensions before and we will get through them again. As always, societies will rebuild and so will our economies. Life goes on! The rationale for not resetting is also predicated on the conviction that the state of the world is not that bad and that we just need to fix a few things around the edges to make it better. It is true that the state of the world today is on average considerably better than in the past. We must acknowledge that. As human beings, we never had it so good. Almost all the key indicators that Measure our collective welfare, like the number of people living in poverty or dying in conflicts, the GDP per capita, life expectancy or literacy rates, and even the number of deaths caused by pandemics, have been continuously improving over past centuries, impressively so in the last few decades. But they have been improving on average, a statistical reality that is meaningless for those who feel, and so often are, excluded. Therefore, the conviction that today's world is better than it has ever been, while correct, cannot serve as an excuse for taking comfort in the status quo and failing to fix the many ills that continue to afflict it. The tragic death of George Floyd, an African American killed by a police officer in May 2020, vividly illustrates this point. It was the first domino, or the last straw, that marked a momentous tipping point at which an accumulated and profound sentiment of unfairness felt by the U.S. African-American community finally exploded into massive protests. Would pointing out to them that on average their lot is better today than in the past have appeased their anger? Of course not! What matters to African-Americans is their situation today, not how much their condition has improved compared to 150 years ago when many of their ancestors lived in slavery it was abolished in the US in 1865, or even 50 years ago when marrying a white American was illegal. Interracial marriage only became legal in all states in 1967. Two points are pertinent to the Great Reset in this. One, our human actions and reactions are not rooted in statistical data, but are determined instead by emotions and sentiments. Narratives drive our behavior. And two, our human condition improves, our standards of living increase, and so do our expectations for a better and fairer life. In that sense, the widespread social protests that took place in June 2020 reflect the urgent necessity to embark on the Great Reset. By connecting an epidemiological risk, COVID 19, with a societal risk, protests, they made it clear that in today's world it is the systemic connectivity between risks, issues, challenges, and also opportunities that matters and determines the future. In the first months of the pandemic, public attention has understandably been focused on the epidemiological and health effects of COVID-19. But moving forward, the most consequential problems lie in the concatenation of the economic, geopolitical, societal, environmental, and technological risks that will ensue from the pandemic and their ongoing impact on companies and individuals there is no denying that the covid 19 virus has more often than not been a personal catastrophe for the millions infected by it and for their families and communities however at a global level if viewed in terms of the percentage of the global population affected the corona crisis is so far one of the least deadly pandemics the world Has experienced over the last 2,000 years. In all likelihood, unless the pandemic evolves in an unforeseen way, the consequences of COVID-19 in terms of health and morality will be mild compared to previous pandemics. At the end of June 2020, at a time when the outbreak is still raging in Latin America, South Asia, and much of the U.S., COVID-19 has killed less than .006% of the world population. To put this low figure into context in terms of lethality, the Spanish flu killed 2.7% of the world's population and HIV AIDS 0.6% from 1981 to today. The Plague of Justinian, from its onset in 541 until it finally disappeared in 750, killed almost one third of the population of Byzantium, according to various estimates, and the Black Death, 1347 to 1351 is considered to have killed between 30 and 40% of the world population at the time. The corona pandemic is different. It does not constitute an existential threat or a shock that will leave its imprint on the world's population for decades. However, it does entail worrisome perspectives for all the reasons already mentioned. In today's interdependent world, risks conflate with each other, amplifying their reciprocal effects and magnifying their consequences. Much of what's coming is unknown, but we can be sure of the following. In the post-pandemic world, questions of fairness will come to the fore, ranging from stagnating real incomes for a vast majority to the redefinition of our social contracts. Similarly, deep concerns about the environment or questions about how technology can be deployed and governed for the benefit of society will force their way onto the political agenda. All these issues predated the pandemic, but COVID-19 has both laid them bare for all to see and amplified them. The direction of the trends hasn't changed, but in the wake of COVID-19, it got a lot faster. The absolute prerequisite for a proper reset is greater collaboration and cooperation within and between countries. Cooperation, a supremely human cognitive ability that put our species on its unique and extraordinary trajectory can be summed up as shared intentionality to act together towards a common goal we simply cannot progress without it will the post-pandemic era be characterized by more or less cooperation a very real risk exists that tomorrow the world will be even more divided nationalistic and prone to conflicts than it is today many of the trends reviewed in the macro section suggest that moving into the future our world will be less open and less cooperative than before the pandemic. But an alternative scenario is possible, one in which collective action within communities and greater collaboration between nations enable a more rapid and peaceful exit from the corona crisis. As economies restart, there is an opportunity to embed greater societal equality and sustainability into the recovery, accelerating rather than delaying progress towards the 2030 sustainable development goals and unleashing a new era of prosperity. What could make this possible and raise the probability odds in favor of such an outcome? Seeing the failures and fault lines in the cruel light of day cast by the corona crisis may compel us to act faster by replacing failed ideas, institutions, processes and rules with new ones better suited to current and future needs this is the essence of the great reset could the globally shared experience of the pandemic help alleviate some of the problems we faced as the crisis started can a better society emerge from the lockdowns amartya sen laureate of the nobel prize in economics thinks so believing that The need to act together can certainly generate an appreciation of the constructive role of public action, citing as proof some examples like World War II having made people realize the importance of international cooperation, and convincing countries like the UK of the benefit of better shared food and health care, and the eventual creation of the welfare state. Jared Diamond, the author of Upheaval, How Nations Cope with Crisis and Change, is of a similar opinion, hoping that the corona crisis will compel us to address four existential risks that we collectively face. One, nuclear threats. Two, climate change. Three, the unsustainable use of essential resources like forests, seafood, topsoil, and fresh water and for the consequences of the enormous differences in standards of living between the world's peoples. Strange as it may seem, the successful resolution of the pandemic crisis may motivate us to deal with those bigger issues that we have, until now, balked at confronting. If the pandemic does at last prepare us to deal with those existential threats, there may be a silver lining to the virus's black cloud. Among the virus's consequences, it could prove to be the biggest The most lasting and our great cause for hope these expressions of individual hope are supported by a multitude of surveys concluding that we collectively desire change they range from a poll in the uk showing that a majority of people want to fundamentally alter the economy as it recovers in contrast to one-fourth wanting it to return to how it was to international surveys finding that a large majority of citizens around the world want the economic recovery from the corona crisis to prioritize climate change and to support a green recovery. Worldwide, movements demanding a better future and calling for a shift to an economic system that prioritizes our collective well-being over mere GDP growth are proliferating. We are now at a crossroads. One path will take us to a better world, more inclusive, more equitable, and more respectful of Mother Nature. The other will take us to a world that resembles the one we just left behind, but worse and constantly dogged by nasty surprises. We must therefore get it right. The looming challenges could be more consequential than we have until now chosen to imagine, but our capacity to reset could also be greater than we had previously dared to hope. And that's the whole fucking thing! We did it! You totally listened to the whole thing! Thank you so much! For listening to the whole fucking thing um thank you again for listening my voice is dead i love you all let's get ready for the great reset i guess it feels like it's just not really a blueprint but like please do this but they're actually kind of facilitating it too so i don't know i'm not going to talk anymore thank you so much for listening good happy new year bye-bye now